it occurs to me that for people who are complete newbies to the X-Men, we haven't explained what Warlock is, which I feel like we should do really quick. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and joining me today is returning guest, Dr. Stephanie Burt, professor of English at Harvard University, previously on Cerebro for the episode on Kate Pride. Stephanie, how are you today? I am doing great. There's a cat right next to me. There sure is. Here. <laughs> uh, I mean, the the the. Kate Pride episode, you didn't get a cat, uh, but for Warlock, you're going to get a cat. And I should also say, because my publisher would uh, get upset at me if, if I just neglected this entirely, that since uh, I last visited you on the air, my chapbook. You have a new chapbook. Yeah. Book, yeah. Did you get, did, did I send you one? I did. Yes. You sent me one. I loved okay. it. Uh, it is a book called For All Mutants, and it consists of poems about the X-Men, mostly. There's some She-Ra in there, too, but it's it's mostly poems about the X-Men. If you go to my Twitter bio, you'll find out how to get it. And who published that? That was published by Rain Taxi Editions in Minneapolis. I am always very, like, confused by poetry. Not in, like, a bad way. I just mean, like, it's not an art form I've ever studied enormously, outside of, like, the ancient stuff I did in classics, but... Whenever someone says, like, did you think this poem was good? I'm always just like, I don't know. It was, I mean, yes, I enjoyed myself. I don't feel like I can speak intelligently about it. You know what well, I, mean? I mean? If you can say that you, if you can read some poems and like them, including ones that are in Latin, like that is. I'm like, that sounded pretty. You know, I just don't, <laughs> I don't That's have valid. deeper, I don't That's have deeper uh, analysis. Industry. It's not like, it's not like, oh, you know, did you get the tooth extraction done? It's, it's poems are all about like, did you like it? Yeah, no, I just feel like it's a bit of a gap in my like English and humanities education. It's just that I never really took a class on it outside of talking about Shakespeare or whatever. It's just not something I've ever studied that closely. But I love the way you have been able to incorporate your love for the genres and these mediums into an art form that people consider to be very highbrow and sort of esoteric i like the idea of bringing like low art to the high art you know what i mean and i i do know what you mean i hate that divide as like yeah. a thing that anybody talks about but i mean i'm i have a media studies master's degree i don't i you know wrote about television for that but i like that kind of stuff anyone who's grown up in a rich english-speaking country has grown up with that kind of high art low art thing mm-hmm I think the reason there aren't more people who really want to hang out and talk about poems by famous people or poems by dead people is that you generally only learn about them in school. Yeah. The exception is is Ireland, where like how does talk about how poetry works is much more like part mm -hmm. of mass culture as well as as highbrow. In a way, this this gets into talking about warlock. And I talk about this a little in a book called Don't Read Poetry, which I think I'm supposed to mention on the podcast. If you want to look in X canon for characters and moments when there's like famous poems that pop up, you can find quite a lot of them. Well, Claremont loves particularly to throw in a quote from a poem or a quote from theater. He loves that kind of thing. 
Yeah, and that's part of his background. The characters who know the most in terms of poems by dead people are, of course, Hank and Emma. I was about to say, there's that great moment in the issue where Emma steals Storm's body briefly when she is learning how to use the weather powers and is so overcome with it, she does an entire soliloquy from Lear, which I think is very funny. (laughs) That's right. Does she do blow winds and crack your cheeks? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which in context means I cannot control the weather. No one can. Right. And she's astonished that she can. Yeah. I mean, my favorite Emma quotes poetry moment, which is the cuckoo who dies. It's not Esme. She's the one who is. Sophie is the good one who dies. At Sophie's funeral, we get these amazing lines from Percy Bissy Shelley, of all people, Mm -hmm. the revolt of Islam. Well, I mean, Emma would love Shelley and Byron. Like those would be. You know, Emma, I think Emma would look down on Byron a little bit. If she knew him as a person, she would feel like she does about Tony Stark. But I think that the work (laughs) probably speaks to her somewhat. You know what I mean? I think that's right. I think (laughs) she would have the feeling that everybody has about Shelley, who I agree with about Shelley, which Mm -hmm. is that this was someone who never learned how to get his mutant powers under control. That makes sense to me as an explanation. Well, we are here to talk, as you mentioned, about Warlock. This made me laugh when I was looking at my to-do list because it means that I've now covered all of the Claremont-era New Mutants except for Rain and Amara. And there's something very funny to me about that because um, those are two episodes that someday I'll have to get to and they're going to be real doozies, but I'm not surprised that they are the last two to get their moment because they are... um, I don't like those girls. (laughs) I like Rain in, and and it's nice when I get to do these episodes to revisit the 80s material, because I like Rain a lot in the 80s. And I actually also like Rain in 90s Excalibur with Douglock, which we'll Mm. get to. I like Rain right now. Oh, well, sure. But that's because Vita is really putting their back into rehabilitating that character. That is correct. Before we get too far away from poetry, I should say, especially for like, this is relevant to a lot of, a lot of Cerebro listeners, I hope, there's this entire world that didn't exist 20 years ago of people who are super into poetry and poetics and reading and writing poems that are primarily about YouTube and performance and the poet reading them live and only leads after that into reading books. And it doesn't necessarily lead back into the past, but it looks a lot more like comic fan culture. And it's freaking great. And I want to celebrate it. Well, that's fantastic. I love when people are able to bring things that they love to art forms that haven't always been accessible. Yeah. Well, thank you for returning to the pod. I was very happy with that Kate Pride episode. And she is a character with a lot to cover. So I felt good about everything we managed to get through in that one. I was over the moon about it. It was one of my peak audio experiences. I'm so glad. Well, it's been a very popular episode. So clearly it resonated with the listeners as well. I'm thrilled to have you back to talk about Warlock because you mentioned in that episode that you have always felt an attachment to characters like the Vision and Warlock, these sort of like robots who are not quite human or who have this sort of ambivalent relationship to their automaton body. And you related that to your trans experience. Yeah. Warlock is a character I have 
very little opinion about off the top of my head. So when you were like, let's do Warlock, I was like, oh. In case this isn't wasn't already established, this may come up later, I am a trans woman. And uh, I have a dog, two cats, awesome adults in my life, and two kids, one of whom you just heard in the background. I mean, I don't know if that will carry into the audio. Here's the thing. Uh huh. You're a family gal. Yeah. When I'm scheduling something with a parent, I'm well aware that sometimes... I mean, listen, I lived with my parents through the whole pandemic, and uh, guess what? My mom's Zooms were frequently interrupted by me, age 33, walking in and going, Mom, I need something. <laughs> so, you know... If you have actual kids, then I imagine it happens a lot more. They're actual kids and, and they're amazing. Having actual literal teens in the house and you know being older than them ramps up my appreciation for Claremont era New Mutants even more, which is <laughs> possible. Well, it's a great book. There is something just indelibly unique about it. And there have been so many attempts over the years to replicate the feeling of Claremont New Mutants, particularly the Claremont Sienkiewicz New Mutants. Yeah. And I don't think that they typically succeed. I think that Generation X was an attempt to recapture that vibe. And I think that there are moments when that book really soars, but I think a lot of it struggles to get there. Yeah. The current run of New Mutants by Vidal and Rod Rice, to me... There have been other great runs with these characters. I like the Niciesa X-Force quite a bit. I really, really love the Zeb Wells New Mutants in the aughts. Yes. But this is the first one that feels like that to me. Like it has that energy. It's something new. It's not derivative, but something about the combination of Ayala's real understanding of the emotional stakes with these characters and Rice's style being so painterly and avant-garde for comics gets that back in a way that I didn't think we ever would. I mean, it really was shocking to me to start reading it. That is exactly right. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's, it doesn't feel like a, an, a, an homage or a retread. It feels like the first book that's completely gotten the spirit of... And I want to credit... I sort of want to say it's the Claremont Sienkiewicz, but also the Claremont Sienkiewicz, Leia Loha, uh, Mary Wilshire, props to Mary Wilshire, like that whole team, Louis Simonson and, and Ascenti. Busima, there's lots of people in the mix yeah. in that period. And Claremont New Mutants, and when it worked, Simonson New Mutants, was really a book about a group of teens. Mm-hmm. Where in DePhilippus Academy X, I liked. I think it really went off the rails in a lot of ways when Kyle and Yoss took over. Oh, see, that's so funny. I have the exact opposite opinion. Last week's episode was about Sarek Deer. I've been listening to it. Not yeah. love Academy X, I know. That book doesn't really work for me. The Kyle and Yoast book, while it is... I think a stronger book, it definitely is not a New Mutants book. It doesn't have that quality to it really at all. The Kylan Yost Academy X is about a group of teens dealing with their world being destroyed and being right. constantly under threat of all being murdered. Yeah, I mean, that's the decimation era generally kind of, right? And it's particularly dire if you're 17. There's that sequence in Kyost. Academy X, where the kids all try to figure out who the youngest one of them is because they're like, that's, that's right. definitely who's going to die next. And it's Pixie and she doesn't. It's Indra, actually. They realize at the, oh. they think it's Pixie, but they realize it's Indra. And Indra doesn't die either. So they've made it, they made it through. Forget about him. Yeah. One thing that 
that we're into Philippus do understand is that if you want to get the teenage vibe in a book about people who are no longer teens, you have to have them interacting with teens. Mm -hmm. And you can think that they just didn't stick the landing and certainly they didn't do everything right. But we're into Philippus are writing a book about people in their 20s and maybe 30s for karma trying to figure out how to help teens how to relate to the next generation yeah and and they fail a lot but like they're they're trying and and then and we're seeing that we haven't seen that since decimation really until the the current new mutants and the current run of new mutants my issue with it is more yes about execution as opposed to concept i think that a lot of the concepts are good the rain and elixir thing that one's rough for me. Otherwise, conceptually, I see what they were trying to do yeah. with most of those storylines, and I think they're pretty good ideas. I just think that on the page, for whatever reason, it often doesn't land for me. That's fair, yeah. I'm, I'm going to say one thing about the Rain and Elixir thing. I see why some people find it completely unpalatable, and I wouldn't mind if they hadn't made that choice. But it does make sense for the characters and the way that they had Danny, who is the moral center of gravity for that whole book, handle it. Was not perfect, pretty good. Occasionally, these things happen. They're always wrong. The teacher should always know better and you're fired. Yeah, my issue is that like then there's, you know, then you have Sean, who I think should be the moral center more than Danny personally, is like we should bring Rain back to the school. Like I, I, it just doesn't. Yeah, no, that's it I doesn't work do for me. I won't do that. I think it poisoned Rain as a character is the problem. I think that you can pinpoint exactly where that character drives off a cliff and it's i mean not that the 90s were kind to her in a lot of ways but i think that that is just where the character falls off until like a month ago i think that's right i think that's right and you can say that something is in character but hate it that's my thing. It's not that I don't think Rain would do that. It's that I think it was the wrong choice to make for... Here's here's what I think about it. It's, it's the same way that I feel about Thierry Weapon X explicitly making Sinister a Nazi collaborator. That's right. Which I choose to ignore. I simply choose to ignore it, like most things in Thierry Weapon X, because I don't think it syncs up very well with anything else. Here's the thing. Is it in character for Mr. Sinister to have collaborated with the Nazis? Absolutely. He's a eugenicist who has no morals. That makes sense. But once you do that, then the character has this baggage. And if you're trying to do something in an ongoing world, it's what Hickman always says about put the toys back in the box when you're done with them. And being additive rather than destructive is also the thing that Hickman often says. That's right. And you were actually talking about this on the, the Dust episode about this is the defense of the Zorn retcon. Yes. If you don't retcon Zorn. Then Magneto's ruined. Then Magneto is ruined forever. Yeah. Right. And while I like the Zorn story personally, where he's Magneto, I completely understand logistically the need to absolve Magneto of that story. That's right. That's right. We are we agree completely about Zorn. Yeah, I think we actually agree about about Rain. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, like, I 
it's funny because we're, do, we're doing this episode, obviously, like Doug and Rain are so tied as characters that I had to revisit a lot of yeah. Rain stuff that I quite like, in, actually in the Simonson period, which I do think is underrated. I, I think right. Birdbrain is obnoxious. The Gossamer arc is baffling. I get why people are not as high on it as they are on the Claremont run, but I think that when it's really good, it's really, really good. That's exactly right. The top moments are really top moments, and you can sort of see towards the end, you can see in, in Genosha where she chooses, this is the way it feels in retrospect, she chooses to kill Warlock off rather than turning him into a giant machine gun. Rather than let him be a Liefeld character, yes. Right, right. And that is the choice that Warlock would make. Uh-huh. He's so consistently about not wanting to be used as a Sherman tank, even when he is literally a Sherman tank, which happens at least once. And one of the, the, the tensions, one of the fun things to follow... I'm not very good at drawing. I will sometimes draw for fun. I'm close to some people who are serious about their visual art. Same. I love to like doodle, but the doodles are bad and I will not share them. Like, it's <laughs> sort of how I feel about it. All you know what I mean? Jay Edidin of another great X-Men podcast. Friend of the pod. I think more than once I've seen him make the point that anybody can draw Warlock. Warlock is someone you can always doodle. There is no one right version of Warlock. Warlock doesn't have to approximate any body. See, that's interesting because I find, and there, there are questions about that that we'll get into later, but I find that Warlock is very difficult for people to draw. And I think that part of why he's, like, I get what you're saying literally, which is that he can look like anything, but... Easy to doodle, he's really hard to draw well. Once you right, like, that's the thing. Fan to pro line, he's really difficult. Once you're trying to make a comic, I think a lot of artists have trouble with Warlock. I think part of what has made the Rod Rice work on New Mutants feel of a piece with that Sienkiewicz stuff is that his interpretation of Warlock is not copying Sienkiewicz's original, but gets at that real looseness of line and form that makes him look like he doesn't belong in the panel with the other characters. And I think that there's often a temptation that artists have to make Warlock look like a physical being who exists in the same space or on the same plane as the other characters, when I feel like he's almost a character that can only exist in the comics page because he is so... He's like Cool World, kind of. You know, like, for the Gen Z kids, that's a movie from the 90s. But the idea of, like, this is... A, or, like, who framed Roger Rabbit? It's like, here's Roger Rabbit walking around with real actors. You know what I mean? I know what you mean, and I disagree. That's great. This is why I'm thrilled to have a warlock enthusiast on. Yes, I am, of course. Because I'm going to just shoot opinions from the hip, and if you say, hmm, here's why that's wrong, I'm going to be like, you know what? Great point, because I, I didn't think it through super hard. Oh, self-friend. <laughs> self-friend has opinions. Before we get super deep into Warlock, actually, just a couple bits of business, some business. corrections. Business. So first, a Russian listener wrote in on Twitter to inform me that it should be pronounced Ilyana Rasputina, not Ilyana Rasputina, as Leah and I said a bunch. Wow. Here's how I feel about that. I'm glad you told me, but the band Rasputina has been in my head since I was like 12. And I'm, I would think that Ilyana probably says it Rasputina in English to go back to the debate in the skin episode about Angelo versus Angelo. I bet that if she's speaking Russian, she would say Rasputina or however you're actually supposed to say it. But in English, I bet she says Rasputina the same way that Natasha Romanoff is usually called Natasha Romanova when people are pronouncing that 
in English. So yeah. that's my take on that. I am going to continue to say Rasputina. I'm sorry if it hurts your ears, but I just feel like in English that's a more natural sound. But I appreciate you reaching out. I do try to pronounce things correctly. Then there are just two straight up mistakes in the dust episode. One is that I said Julian, I, when I was writing the character file, I had, I brought up Julian Keller so many times that then when I was writing wind dancer's name, I wrote Julia. So I refer to Sofia Montega as Julia Montega, which is not her name. That was just my mistake because I had Julian on the brain after I wrote it out like six times. I also, this is just me straight up conflating issues in my head. Neil Shara is not part of Export Mumbai. I said in the episode, that makes sense because he's from India and it would make sense. However, he's not in that issue and he's not there at all. He and Lifeguard are part of Xcorp Singapore and they appear in a different story from that era. So this is the thing about Xcorp at that time is that every character who wasn't in a regular book somewhere was in some city at an Xcorp branch and you just see them very briefly. So it's hard to remember sometimes who's where. But yes, Xcorp Mumbai was Sunfire, Warpath, Feral, and Thorn. And don't worry about it, frankly, because we will never see those people in a room together again, I bet. That's right. I think that's right. With that out of the way, I'd love to hear about your connection to Warlock, why this character is meaningful to you personally, before we get into the themes and whatnot about the character. I want to put a pin in how should Warlock look and should he look like part of the world? There's a whole question about art and stuff. I want to put another pin in just talking about what artists can do with Warlock, which Mm -hmm. they they almost, if you look at the best ones, they have done. I don't feel like he's a a character whose visual potential has gone consistently unrealized. It's just been uneven. Yeah, I would agree. Versus what you can do with Warlock narratively and psychologically and as a writer. And I was surprised reading all of the post-New Mutants 95 Warlock material that there is, I think, at how few stories have been told that are about him. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's fewer war- issues with Warlock doing stuff than I thought. He just does them over and over. And it was frustrating, almost like karma, except that karma had Marjorie Lou to look after her. But only like Marjorie Lou and Zeb Wells. I don't think until Vita, anybody else has ever really given karma the page space that she deserves. Right. But Warlock has really only had Abaddon and Lanning. Yeah. And Louis Simonson in the solo. That very weird mini, yeah, which we'll get to, I'm sure. The problem is that Warlock does the same things over and over when he's centered. Uh, but we will get to that. And you want to talk about my experience with Warlock. Okay, um, this is, uh, I'm going to try not to repeat things that I said on the Cape Pride episode because some people are cerebro-completists uh, and may have heard it. Yeah, but also that was like 30 episodes ago. So it's okay if you accidentally do. I think that's okay. fine. I repeat myself relentlessly on this podcast to the point where people have made bingo cards of things I say pretty much every week. So how you, you know. I mean, who, who has not, I aspire to have someone make a bingo card of things that I say. <laughs> I feel like that would be the kind of. It's weird to find out what things you say a lot that you don't realize you say a lot. Like don't I worry use about the it. phrase. Just don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, don't worry about it, which I did not intend to be a catchphrase, but it became one. But the, uh, the one that really made me laugh was I said like at least five times that I would read Vidayala write the phone book and the Gen Z fans had clearly just never heard this expression before. And it makes <laughs> sense because nobody has a phone book anymore. Sure. 
you know, it just means I'd read anything they would write. If That's anybody listening who doesn't know what that means, because the phone book, if you never encountered one, was boring. It, it was page after page, the yellow pages or the white pages, depends on what you were looking for. And it would be this huge, really low quality paperback tome that was gigantic. And it was just names with phone numbers after them. There are either two or three mutants in the Marvel Universe who would, in fact, read the phone book, even if it were not written by Vida Ayala. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm sure Doug's read the phone book, just sure. for reference. Sure. Sage has read the phone book to memorize it all. Sage, Doug, and Warlock <laughs> have read the phone book. However, <laughs> Doug doesn't read super fast. He just understands the pattern. He just understands it, yeah. So I think he read... Okay, honestly, I used to do this. The stuff at the beginning and the end of the phone book explaining how area codes work. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He would want to know the systems. He would want to understand, like, how does the phone system work? He'd be figuring that out. Right. He's been able to have that conversation with Kate and with Warlock and with Sage. And with Kate, Kate was like, I understand where you're coming from, but that's a little systematic for me. I think it's cool to know that when I'm calling San Francisco, it's 415, and it's cool to know why New York is 212. But I'm not going to, I don't have space in my big brain for how they cut up Texas. That's a little obsessive compulsive for Kate, honestly. Right, right, like, I don't her, think right. that's her, how her head works, you no, know? <laughs> but she hangs out with enough other computer people that she absolutely that, that is a thing. And that's, yeah. I mean, I am, I am with Kate with that. Like, I understand it's not quite me, but I get it. Uh, with Warlock, Warlock would be like, of course, but this seems kind of arbitrary, but also that's kind of cool, and it's part of the human world, that some of this is arbitrary. And and with Sage... With Sage, it's data allocation. I mean, right. she just wants to have all of that in her computer brain for reference. Right. Sage has never had a moment when she could just do that for fun, though, because she's been so much about data allocation for quasi-military purposes for her. Oh, yeah, no, she's completely weaponized. I mean, I don't think Sage really has fun, particularly. She likes to, she tries to, but I think that it's hard for her to uncouple thinking with feeling. You know, like, she she's sort of just always processing something oh. as opposed she doesn't stop herself to, you know, enjoy herself. Oh, and this is a combination of autism stuff and trauma stuff. That makes sense to me. Actually, going back, I was just talking to one of the listeners about the Sage episode. Because in the Sage episode, I say that the autism read, I don't know about it because she's able to read people's intent and social cues and facial expressions very precisely. Could I answer that question again? I would say I've been reading more about like social masking and stuff yeah. like that. And you absolutely could read Sage that way. So that's been an interesting thought experiment for me is like, I don't think I thought about it in an expansive enough way. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And um, I should, this is a good way to back up to what is my personal connection to, to Warlock. There we go. I was hoping that might be a natural segue. It absolutely <laughs> is. Uh, okay, you have also basically just commissioned a Safe for Work fanfic on my Safe for Work fanfic alias, in which Sage goes to Ileana and Scott and says, how do you have fun? I think it's a good question. Actually, I think if you want to do an autism story, she should ask Monet. I'm not sure Sage knows how to have a conversation with Monet. That is an entirely fair point. Also, I don't understand Monet. That's also a fair point. I, I do, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but that's why certain characters speak to certain people more than yeah. others. And I want to know why Warlock speaks to you. Because to me, he was like always kind of fun, but there. 
So since this is going to be on the edge of autism discourse, like back and mm -hmm. forth and on the edge of like history of nerd culture and on the edge of like what's going on with trans girl identity and nerd culture. And also like, I'm not actually a computer girl. People for all of my childhood thought that I was supposed to be good at chess. I'm terrible at chess. I hate chess. <laughs> if you like chess, it's fine. It's a valid pursuit. I like chess, but I'm not very good at it. So it's frustrating. My brother is excellent at chess. And so I don't want to play chess with him because I will simply lose. Yeah, no, there's, <laughs> games, there's games that I am bad at. I'm actually, I play the game Splendor a lot with a couple people. And I'm, I'm not very good at that because it's, it's not verbal and it involves like thinking ahead. But I just, I love it. I don't, I don't love chess. And, and I'm not, I don't really have a software talent. And I like recreational math. And I'm not really good at it. I was expected because I'm hyperverbal and I'm like good at school and I get A's and I like, you know, learning about the sciences. I was expected to be a hard sciences and like CS person by people who didn't know me very well. Up until I went to college, I went to a high school reunion, which I actually enjoyed. Your mileage may vary. I loved my high school reunion. I thought I would hate it because I was, you know, I was the one out gay kid in my school. It was not like the most delightful high school experience. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. And then I went and actually like, it was like, you know what? We're all like 28 and this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a little younger than me. There were not, there were kids everyone knew were gay. And right. the, the only people came out at the end of senior year. Well, it wasn't a choice I made, so it was... Oh, oh no, yeah. you were outed. Oh, no. Yeah, so it's... Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Listen, it was almost 20 years ago, and I'm over it. Insofar as you ever completely get over things, you know what I mean? But yeah. part of what actually helped me get over it was at that reunion, seeing people who had been unkind at that time and having really pleasant conversations with them and realizing, like, we were all just stupid kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I think a lot of New Mutants stories are kind of about. Part of what I like about Vita's run right now is having characters like Danny and Karma and Sean sit around and talk about their problems and realizing, like, these girls have known each other for <clears throat> years. I mean, we can't say how many, but they can look back on these stories from the 80s and be like, wow, I really behaved badly that's in that right. situation or whatever. And they have that history with each other. That's right. And if you're a reader who's like over 20 and you've been identifying with these characters. Right. Whether you read that Climb on stuff growing up, which I did because I'm I am that old. You're not that old. <laughs> I am old I am old enough to have bought um they were contemporary to you. Yeah. Somewhat. That's right. Yeah. Ah, which is scary. Uh, but going back to less <laughs> scary things. Well, it's weird because we get older and they stay the same age. Like I was reading these characters when I was much younger than them. And now I'm older than them. And that is always a scary thing about Marvel Comics. Yeah. Well, they do. They do get older, but not at the same rate as we do. Right. Like, no, they have distinctly aged in a way that Marvel characters don't always i think that that is something about the x-men that's really interesting yeah but it's weird to think like sean is probably 30 i'm not gonna do age discourse but i'm saying if we're gonna i'm now turning 34 in march so it's just one of those things where i'm like to me sean was very much like a big sister character yeah 
you start to age out, which I think is, is just an interesting thing about the experience of reading these comics over decades, which I guess is an experience you only have if you're a real nerd like us, because most people read them as kids and then fall off. So they never have that existential terror of I'm now 10 years older than Kate Pride, which is a very weird feeling to suddenly have. You know what I mean? I mean... <laughs> The counterpart to that is the feeling that, that you actually haven't grown up at all and somehow, like, you have all this adult <laughs> stuff to do. And you're still 17 and it's terrifying. Oh, I meant physically 10 years older. I, I don't necessarily mean I process my shit any better than the characters have. So you were expected to be sort of a STEM person. Yeah. Yeah, I brought with the high school reunion. I, I people who hadn't seen me since you know since I was seventeen, who knew that I was a college professor but didn't know what were guessing physics, and I'm not even very good at physics. I got B's in physics. I never took it. It was scary to me. I'm bad at math. It's a lot of math. Yeah, it was math that was hard for me. The chemistry math was not always easy, but fun because it's all real stuff. I did AP Biology instead because I was like, I can at least make a chart here that I will understand because I don't have to do math to like remember the Krebs cycle or whatever, you know? I mean, you have to do math if you want to affect the Krebs cycle, but to remember it. Yeah, but I didn't. I just wanted to pass the class. <laughs> I, I love I baby biology. I love baby biology. So I had this, this sense of being, I was supposed to be the STEM person. I got really, really attached to friends and wanted more friends and never wanted to give up friends. I'm, very, I, that's, I'm still a very loyal person, I hope. Which also means that I'm probably easily manipulated, mm -hmm. and I've I've had that sense, which I think a, like a lot of people talk about this, and a lot of people who are nowhere near the autism spectrum and are cis talk about this too. But you see it a little more in in those categories of like I really want people to like me. I want to do the right social thing and make the people around me feel better and be connected to them. But no one told me the rules. I don't know what to do. Like. How soon after you've met someone do you like ask for their phone number? How soon are you supposed to call them up? Mm -hmm. How do you know when you're supposed to leave a conversation because you're not welcome there? When someone tells you a secret that makes them vulnerable, how do you know when to share it with someone because they need help? And how do you know when not to share it? Mm -hmm. like, how do you know all those social rules? I know that not knowing those rules and like learning them by forking up is is like part of teenage experience in general, but it does seem like the rules are easier for some people to learn than others, and some people like need them spelled out. This gets back to Sage a little bit. You can never know the rules and you can just instinctively know the rules the way that some people can instinctively read facial expressions, or you can learn the rules because people actually tell you. And that is what the characters do for Warlock time and time again in these stories. They're always explaining to him what he's not quite getting instinctively about the situation. Because he has no instincts. He has the wish to do good and the ability to process vast quantities of information instead of instincts. Nothing in Warlock except math goes without saying. You have to tell him. People who self-identify as autistic who have very good social skills in my experience, without exception, are people where it had to be made explicit and thrive in situations where either in the past or in the present, what are you expected to do to be a good friend? What do you do to be polite? What do you do in the situation is being spelled out. This gets back into how am I attached to the character? I don't know if I count as autistic. I have people in my life who I'm close to who are clearly nowhere near the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I have people in my life who 
either consistently self-identify as autistic and have, you know, more of the checklist or people where knowing the checklist and knowing the sort of history of the diagnosis helps me be like a better friend and a better person for them. Some people who are close to me are like, yeah, no. And some people who are close to me are like, yeah, of course you're autistic, of course. And it, it absolutely depends on the definition that you use. I try not to take a position. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether I count as autistic or not, just like I don't know whether, uh, what's another good example? A lot of things that require self-analysis, there's going to be that doubt. Yeah. Oh, okay, here's a good example. Is a tomato a vegetable? Well, it depends what you mean by vegetable. Right, because it's a fruit. But there's a valid definition of vegetable and a valid definition of fruit by which tomatoes are fruits and not vegetables and another by which they're vegetables and not fruits. And the same is true for cucumbers, right? Because cucumbers are the ovaries of a plant containing seeds. Right. So it's not like, you know, are you right or wrong to say a cucumber is a fruit? It's what frame of reference are you using? And I, I don't want to colonize or appropriate the experience of people who are easily overloaded, who experience sensory overload a lot, who have sort of extreme kinds of introversion, who have language difficulties and are sometimes nonverbal, and who can't interface with standard educational systems, all of which are common features of autism. I don't have them, but I do stim. I do like systems. I do hyperfocus. I do. I need things spelled out. I can't really read faces. My body doesn't seem like it's under my control in the same way that a lot of people's bodies are under their control. It's pretty easy to read me as autistic or as not autistic at all and not close to it, depending on what your criteria are. And I accept both readings and I also really love tomatoes and if you put salt on them, which I'm told by a Korean American friend is a Korean dessert, they're a delicious fruit dessert food thing. I do not like tomatoes, but I love that for you. There you go. <laughs> That's you're so good at this. You're you have social skills. So Warlock is very extroverted. Warlock wants to make friends and doesn't know how to go about it. Warlock is really curious about new experiences and loves travel and really wants to be super helpful and kind. Warlock's body is extremely confusing to Warlock and is pretty flexible, but would never be mistaken for like a regular human boy or girl, either one. Unless he shapeshifts, which sometimes he can do to look yeah human but it takes a while to get there it takes a while and often it's silly because he can't quite piece together like what a human is supposed to look like right like it's always a little bit off he has to be told he has to be given models exactly right all of those things helped younger me and also older me identify with warlock and i i see myself in all of the android characters and all of the sort of machine characters who were trying really hard to be good and to be human and to have friends and also often to have romantic lives. Uh, we talked about this on the Kate Pride episode. I used to identify very strongly with the Vision and with Machine Man, mm -hmm. who are robot, android, uh, you know, cyber sentient characters who are trying very hard specifically to be straight men dating women and to, to perform a sort of non-toxic uh, but sort of standard masculinity well. And reading about the vision just makes me sad because he still tries to do that. And he tries to look like a dude and he's in love with someone who I read as a straight woman. 
and he can't make it happen. That's just sad, and that's not me anymore because, I mean, because everyone knows I'm gay and I transitioned and I have this queer community and my romantic life and my social life doesn't require me to bang my head against the wall and pass through the wall trying to be something I'm not anymore. I still identify with Warlock because Warlock is trying to be flexible and Warlock has some measure of acceptance despite being just super weird. And that can be done <laughs> well and poorly. Warlock also has the kind of romantic life when he's written at his best, which I think is Claremont, Simonson, and Vida Ayala, and really not much in between. Mm -hmm. And Simonson doesn't even really get this. It's really Claremont and, and, and Ayala. You mean the romance with Doug that you can read into the story? Correct. It's not just that Warlock's attraction to Doug is romantic, and that if you are interested in what kind of physicality their relationship is and whether to sexualize it. Yeah, I think it's sexual. I mean, I, I read it as both. Of course it's sexual, but also <laughs> it raises the question of what sex is and what counts yes. sex, which for a lot of us and especially trans people, but not only trans people, the question of like what kind of touch counts as sexual, what kind of romance is sexualized, what counts as having sex, those are interesting questions without completely obvious answers. Mm -hmm. It's very much a gay question as well. Like, I mean, one of the things that lesbians are always up against, uh, cis lesbians in particular, the idea that two cis women having sex like doesn't count as sex, which is obviously absurd, but is something that you hear from straight people making jokes or whatever. With Doug and Warlock in particular, I just don't think you could ignore AIDS. There's the specter of HIV in all of the trans mode virus stuff that goes on. Like every time they merge and share life glow, there's a risk that Warlock will infect Doug and turn him into a monster. I don't know if Chris Claremont did that on purpose. I have no idea. I'd have to ask him, but it feels like it's right there on the page to me. So you're not wrong. The way that the transmode virus works is so much like horror tropes that predate AIDS and HIV. Yes. And so unlike HIV. Right. Mechanically speaking, it's not actually anything like HIV. But the combination of that difference and the fact that there is an obvious hit you over the head with it early 90s AIDS allegory. But you'll note there's often in later stories an alignment of the transmode virus and the legacy virus that get connected in different ways. There's that exile story where Warlock like merges with the legacy virus and creates a play. Like there's, yeah. I, I think that there's something there because we're talking about the 80s. The 90s story is about the AIDS crisis, right? Yeah. The 80s story is more about like the fear of infection. I think that's right. I also think, especially since you're with New Mutant stuff, you're talking about teens and people who are afraid of guilt by association and people who are afraid of ruining their reputations or like... It can be an infection in a lot of different ways. Yeah. It, does, it could just be the fear of being infected by 
the gayness of it all. Because it's so easy to get the transmode virus because it's like comes from external surface touching. From touch, right, yeah. I, I find it more productive and enriching and like I can go farther with it to see it as about sort of cooties. Sure, but this is a generational difference maybe, like because I'm a little bit younger than you. When I was growing up after the AIDS crisis, the idea of cooties and the idea of AIDS were very tied up in one another, even on the playground. So again, I don't think this necessarily is something that Claremont did on purpose. I just think that the idea that they're like a zero discordant couple and that that is a fear that they have when they're intimate is sort of a reading that I can never quite escape from myself when I revisit that material. I love that reading, which I hadn't seen, and I completely believe you that it is there. Yeah, I just, and we don't have to focus on it. I'm just, for the record, that's, that's right. of the few thoughts thoughts on warlock that i have that are comprehensive that's one of them I yeah guess, no i, I think I'm, I'm not gonna try to talk you out of that at all <laughs> the playground cooties are there for sure and doug is someone who is making a series of choices about how nerdy he wants to be mm-hmm. um, early on and he's usually making the choice to let himself be nerdier but it's scary But then, and this also goes back to ways in which I sort of see myself in, in, in Warlock, I was sort of the, often the less nerdy of the, the people in a sort of nerdy friend pair. Uh, but I was the gayer in a friend pair that was two girls before and after I realized that in fact, I am a girl, which, you know, took a while. And I mean, this is, this is why I am obsessed with Shakespeare's As You Like It. Mm-hmm. The pattern where you have, and it's also, it, it's a plot point in like every Tilly Walden book, if you read Tilly Walden's comics, it's a, a, a kind of plot I can't get away from. Two girls are best friends. And this happens with boys too. Two same gender people are best friends and they do everything together. And maybe they get each other off when they're 14. And then one of them, like they turn 15, 17, 18, 28. One of them is like, actually, I kind of want to have some het dating experience. And the other one is like, you're abandoning me. How could you do this to me? I only want you. This happens. I know a lot of people this exact thing has happened to. Yes. And to jump way far ahead, that is the element of the Bay Doug Warlock Triangle in the present that I find very compelling. Exactly. You see it in the Simonson Warlock series and you see it when he's sort of allowed to have speaking parts. You see it a little bit in the Zeb Wells New Mutants, which is a great run, but not a great one for Warlock. He's a secondary concern for sure. They have they have other stuff. And then even in the Abnett Landing run where the Warlock Doug connection is emphasized for sure. Yeah, right, right. But Warlock doesn't really get to be very much apart from Doug in that run. No. I do think Abnett and Lanning, when they use Warlock, they understand him. They just don't, they can't think of new things to do with him. Mm-hmm. When Doug talks about not wanting to become the true friend and when Warlock stops existing when he's connected to the true friend future in that plot line. Right. Um, which, by the way, whoever maintains like fandom.marvel.com and Wikipedia entries and stuff, who does the people who create the commonly used internet histories of characters the in true friend arc and the abnett landing new mutants are not in there at all so no the wikipedia editor get, get on that to the point where when i was cross-referencing for the doug episode i yeah. forgot to talk about the true friend at all because no. well here's the thing i wasn't 
I really like a lot of Abnett and Lanning stuff. I was not super crazy about their New Mutants, particularly, I think, because I love Wells's so much and it follows it right after. And it was just not, it wasn't as much for me. I mean, the characters I wanted to keep reading about were Ilyana and Sean and they're barely in it, right? That's right. It was just a direction I wasn't crazy about. So I had just hadn't read it in a long time. And then I was like, which Doug stories am I missing? Like the two things I forgot to bring up were The True Friend and All New X Factor. Mm. (laughs) And I think it's because my brain had just sort of like slid over them, but also because that period of the X-Men, as you're saying, is not as comprehensively documented on all of these fan yeah aggregates of information yeah i love the true friend story and i think that one of the things one of the bits that you see in that story is that when warlock is connected to the bad future of the true friend he winks out of existence because doug has absorbed and defeated him for me it's about young people wanting to make everything comprehensible by completely mastering their environment. And in real life, that results in people never making any new friends and like never leaving their rooms. Warlock is an extrovert. Warlock wants new experience. And when Doug sort of goes power mad under the influence of the lonely interdimensional octopus, uh, he's... That is what happens. (laughs) He really kills Warlock by taking Warlock's power for himself and destroying Warlock's personality. Mm-hmm. Another way that I see myself in Warlock is Warlock wants to see the world and like make friends and, and doesn't really understand how to do it. Uh, one of the fun moments, and it's about two pages, uh, they go to a party during the Abnett Landing New Mutants. The New Mutants go to a party in Madripoor and Warlock uh, sort of almost goes on a date And you see Roberto trying to be a player and completely striking out. And you see Warlock making a friend with someone, I think her name is Troy or Twa, um, who's an armored Madriporian. And they just hang out. Mm -hmm. I really dislike the visuals in that run. I think the, the art, which is fine for the human characters, doesn't understand what Warlock should look like. That is honestly what I was thinking about earlier when I said that I think a lot of artists make Warlock look sort of too tangible to me. Yeah. Like, that that was the run I was specifically thinking about. Yeah. I, I Warlock looks wrong in that run, and Warlock looks wrong in the Simonson solo series. And That's it, the other one I was thinking about. <laughs> where Warlock looks the same. And those are, that Warlock is coming out of a lot of people drawing Douglock. Yes. Who is, for some reason, primarily gold. Well, that's because of the Phalanx Association, I think. Well, it's because of the Phalanx Association. It's also because Warlock is black with gold highlights, and you can't really blackface Doug. Can't really do that with Doug. Yeah, it would have been... I think So instead, he's gold with, like, the black techno-organic lines and whatnot. It sort of flips it. Yeah, which is fine. That's not how Warlock should look. I feel like Warlock is someone who wants to make new friends and also really wants to have a romantic connection to his self-soul friend. When Warlock is written badly, Warlock uh, gets, or written wrong in this way, Warlock sort of gets crushes on girls and has to be heterosexualized, which doesn't make any sense. And, and that's a thing that Simonson never quite got. When Warlock is, is written the way that I want him to be written, it's about just really wanting to be physically connected to the person who is your everything, even as you want everyone, you want, 
him and you want yourself to go out and make new friends and you want to be helpful to them. You want to be good for them. You don't want to just be their armor and their protection. You want to help them go out in the world and do new things, which Doug kind of needs Mm -hmm. and needs to learn to accept. And then of course, Doug, Doug's sexuality is warlock and girls. Yes. And warlock has to handle that. There's a lot of good fanfic that involves the triangle of Doug and Warlock and girls. And there's a lot of just very good Doug and Warlock fanfic. It's one of the, not just the deeper archives, once you start reading not safe for work fanfic that's not Charles and Eric, um, but one of the better <laughs> written ones. I would recommend anyone who is not uh, you know, legally discouraged right. <laughs> and who wants to read it uh, to uh, you know look at that. And it's it's... It's a couple that people who are interested in these New Mutants characters want to see more of. And it's a very productive and fascinating and fun couple to think about and to think about the ways in which it comes under threat when Warlock is afraid that he's about to be displaced. Another thing about Warlock that is a source of personal identification, like I happen to be very simply binary trans. I'm a girl. For several years, I tried to live as someone with a complex and situationally dependent gender identity. Uh, I ran the experiment. Uh, I'm a girl. I'm she, her <laughs> when I wake up and I'm she, her when I go to bed. Uh, and if people use other pronouns for me, they are wrong. But a lot of trans people are they, them. A lot of trans people are shapeshifty and are one pronoun today and another pronoun tomorrow. Warlock on page has always, I believe, taken he, him pronouns. Yes. I see why Warlock chose he, him, his pronouns in a story of coming to Earth that was published in our time in 1984, and I see why Warlock stuck with it. Yeah. At that time, not only in our universe, but in the Marvel universe, the only reason to use they, them pronouns would be if you actually had multiple personalities. They, them pronouns would be reserved for people like Aurora or like Legion, where they have alters. Right. We are Legion, you know. Yeah. Warlock is, is one person. But there's nothing about Warlock's behavior on Earth that sort of requires he, him pronouns. And a lot of people, including myself, headcanon Warlock as some variety of non-binary. And Warlock makes a lot of sense as non-binary rep. Warlock also makes a lot of sense as disability rep, and we can get back to that. But we should also talk about patriarchy. Well, what I was about to say is one thing I think is really interesting about the Simonson Warlock solo is a moment, and I couldn't remember if this term had been used before in Claremont, but the Magus is referred to as Warlock's Sire-Dam, like one word, S-I-R-E-D-A-M. Yes. That stood out to me because Warlock and Magus, of course, are both masculine terms as opposed to witch or pharmacists or other terms that would have been contemporary to those regions. But that's a moment of Louise Simonson acknowledging that the Magus is beyond gender and is the only parent that Warlock has, right, is both mother and father. It felt like a tacit acknowledgement to me that the technarchy is perhaps a, a genderless or gender fluid species. Yeah, I... I noticed Sirdam in Simonson and I didn't go back to look for the first occurrence of Sirdam. Mm-hmm. And now I wish I had. I am tempted to Google. I it think it's me. her. I don't think it's used in Claremont. Yeah. I think Claremont just says father. I think that's right. I think that's right. And go Simonson. The technarchy 
is a good illustration of the difference between sex and gender in a way. Sure. The technarchy is biologically without sex and everyone has only one parent, but it is destructively, murderously patriarchal and entirely about masculine and Freudian norms of the son overthrowing the father. Mm-hmm. It's all Zeus and Cronus, Cronus and Uranus kind of stuff, very mythically in that Claremont loves the classics kind of way, you know? Anakin and Luke. Yeah. It occurs to me that for people who are complete newbies to the X-Men, we haven't explained what Warlock is, which I feel like we should do really quick. (laughs) Warlock is a member of a techno-organic race called the Technarchy. They are aliens. They are kind of like the Borg. They predate the Borg, obviously, which is kind of neat. But, you know, both the Borg and the Technarchy are drawing on a lot of classic sci-fi They are a race of living machines that have sort of some organic component that's not 100% clear, and they devour worlds, essentially. They assimilate civilizations. Warlock is born to their leader, the Magus, and every Technarch, when they are born, is supposed to fight their parent to the death. Only one of them can survive. So every surviving Technarch is someone who has slain their father. Warlock is a mutant Technarch. He specifically is born with empathy, which none of the others have. His mutation is empathy. His superpowers are something every one of his species has. And innately, they carry the techno-organic virus, which they can pass on through contact with people or objects or animals. And the way that they feed is by infecting organic matter with the virus and then draining the infected organic matter of life glow, which is life force, essentially. So there's kind of a parallel, actually, with Selene, but it's the whole species. Warlock, because he is empathetic, doesn't want to kill sentient beings. So he rejects the way that the technarchy operates. He also doesn't want to kill his father. So he flees from the technarchy and ends up crash landing on Earth because he's drawn to the Shi'ar technology that Xavier is using at the mansion. He doesn't initially understand that the new mutants are sentient beings. He fights them. There's a lot of confusion, but they come to understand with the help of Doug how to communicate with him. Doug doesn't know that he's a mutant at this point because, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, Charles felt that because Doug's power didn't have any useful combat applications, it was better to let Doug just think he was human. Only the new mutants and Kitty know that Doug is a mutant because... Well, and Emma knows, but they rescued Doug from Emma's attempts at recruiting him for the Hellions. They go and get him because they can't communicate with Warlock, but they've been told that that's what Doug's power is. This is why the characters are so indelibly joined, is that it's Doug's origin story as Cypher and also Warlock's origin story as part of human society. Connor is describing the plot of New Mutants 21. Slumber Party, which is a very famous issue. Yeah, if you ask me to name my single favorite comic. There's a reason that the cover of Slumber Party is the cover of the New Mutants Omnibus, because it's an incredible piece of Sienkiewicz art, and it is a real banger of an issue. I mean, there's just no way around it. It's really fucking good. Yeah. So, basically, Warlock's an alien. He looks like a robot. He can shapeshift. His mutation is that he has 
sympathy and empathy for other living things. He is therefore not a mutant in the sense that the other characters are mutants. He does not have an X gene. But in the mid-80s, when the character's introduced, that hasn't super been codified yet as a concept. So he's accepted because he's a mutant of his species into the group. But with Krakoa, we now have questions like, does he count? Does Brew count? Do these alien mutants count? And that is a question that is beyond the scope of this podcast. The point is that politically he counts in terms of how they're defining mutantdom for themselves. He is someone rejected by his species because of a mutation that is a quirk of his birth that he cannot control. So they all relate to him on that level. They teach him very quickly. Danny makes him understand that you, you can't be infecting and eating animals either, like living things. It's really a story about this creature that's completely alien learning social mores, but his anchor is his friendship with these kids, and he's able to feel friendship because that is his mutation. Yeah. And so when he calls them his self-friends, because the technarchy talks in this sort of compound word way, you can't help but think that, like, friend is probably not a word the technarchy had, right? Yeah. It's almost something he invents for himself. It's a word that becomes very, very important to Warlock, and he, he learns it from Doug, right? Right. Some of the words that exist in whatever, however the, the technarchs communicate among themselves, have direct equivalents in English. For example, math words. There's going to be a word for one and for zero and probably a word for mass and a word for energy. But yeah, friend would be a concept that, that wouldn't exist in the technarchy. Right. One of the things that connects Warlock's early adventures to Warlock's unusual speech patterns is a great deal of confusion. It's not intuitive at all uh, about what is animate and what is not animate. The first time Warlock tries to be nice to someone or something on Earth, it's a refrigerator. There's this great little panel in New Mutants 21 of Warlock trying to make friends with a refrigerator. And the refrigerator glows when you open it. Why shouldn't it be you know, glad to see him? So when Warlock says self-friend instead of friend or you know you, right. or self instead of I, or self-soul friend, which is Doug, it's because he doesn't understand how to use pronouns. Which is itself interesting Which when we get to the gender. Very of it all, right? interesting because pronouns are confusing to Warlock even when they're not gendered. Right. It's also because he doesn't understand what has agency and what doesn't have agency, which allows you, if you want, um, I mean, I have a, a, there's a book that came out like 10 years ago called X Men and Philosophy. I don't think there's a chapter about Warlock and object oriented ontology and like actor network theory, but there could be. There's various academic ideas that are very popular that say you get a better account of how the world works and, and how things happen if you ignore the distinction between animate and inanimate objects and think of like you and me and my dog and snails and spoons and rocks and the sun all as agents in a network that affect other agents. And I think Warlock might think that way. It's kind of thing theory also, I think, with Warlock is like the value that you place on a thing gives it value. Oh, it is it thing can theory. can be inanimate. Yeah. Not to get back to my media studies. Yeah. Years, but yeah. Well, this, it, they all, they, this all comes from Bruno Latour. Bill Brown is the thing theory I'm thinking of, though. But oh. after, you know. Now we're back at the University of Chicago and we got to talk about <laughs> <laughs> What 
do Chicago faculty do with mutants? Are they nice to them? Actually, historically, not really, if we're at mechanics. I know. (laughs) I think now is a good time for us to get into the Cerebro character file. I will take you through Warlock's complete publication history from that Slumber Party arc in New Mutants up through the present in Vida Ayala and Rod Rice's current run. Then we will come back for more with Dr. Stephanie Burt on Warlock. We will talk about our favorite Warlock storylines, and then we will answer questions from listeners like you. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Perhaps the strangest member of the classic New Mutants team, the shape-shifting alien Warlock's addition to the book signified the surreal shift in tone under new artist Bill Sienkiewicz. The prince of a techno-organic parasite race called the Technarchy, Warlock was born a mutant of his species, able to feel empathy for others in a way other Technarchs don't. On the run from his people, Warlock crossed paths with the New Mutants and became a key member of the group, forging a deep and intimate bond with Doug Ramsey, a.k.a. Cypher. Like Cypher, Warlock was killed off after Chris Claremont's departure from New Mutants, but it's proven impossible to keep a good technarch down. Warlock debuts in 1984's New Mutants 18 by Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz, where he's fleeing from his cruel father, the Magus, who rules the technarchy. Each technarch is expected to fight their parent to the death the moment they're born, as a core tenet of technarch culture. Possessed of empathy and emotion, Warlock refuses to kill his father and is afraid to die. After a lengthy chase across the galaxy, he crash lands on Earth, where he's drawn to the Shi'ar technology employed at the Xavier Mansion. He arrives in the middle of New Mutants 21, Slumber Party, interrupting the eponymous party held by the New Mutants. Danny Moonstar is able to determine Warlock is a scared creature with a mind, but the teens aren't able to communicate with him, so they go get their friend Doug Ramsey. Professor Xavier has informed them that Doug is secretly a mutant with the power to understand all languages, but has kept this information from Doug ostensibly for his own good. Doug is able to communicate with Warlock, and the New Mutants decide to protect the alien from his father. They petition Professor Xavier to let him join the team, alongside Doug, who takes the codename Cypher. The kids then set out teaching the naive and gullible Warlock about human culture, with Moonstar impressing upon him that he must not feed on living things in the manner to which the technarchy is accustomed. In the pages of Uncanny X-Men, Warlock soon proves essential to the defeat of the sorcerer Kulan Gath and the ancient mutant Selene, when his techno-organic form makes him resistant to their magics. But only a short while later, the Magus lands on Earth, realizing Warlock is hiding there. After a battle with the X-Men, the Magus departs, but not before threatening to destroy the planet if Warlock is not handed over to him. Warlock's resistance to mysticism and psychic power again saves the day when the evil Shadow King is unable to control him. Teaming up with Ilyana Rasputina, codenamed Magic, he's able to help former new mutant Xiang Koima, aka Karma, exercise the Shadow King from her psyche. He's then captured with the rest of the New Mutants and the X-Men's leader Storm, and taken to Asgard by Loki and the Enchantress. The group ends up scattered across the Nine Realms by Ilyana's magic, but Warlock eventually manages to locate Doug, and shapeshifts into a suit of high-tech armor Doug can wear for protection. Pleased and grateful, Doug allows Warlock to drink some of his life glow. After the Asgardian adventure, the New Mutants return home to learn Professor Xavier has departed for Shi'ar space to recover from a near-fatal wound, and a reformed Magneto is their new headmaster. Not long after this, the teens are murdered and resurrected by the cosmic entity called the Beyonder, which leaves all but Moonstar and Warlock in a catatonic fugue state. Magneto agrees to transfer the kids to Emma Frost Massachusetts Academy for treatment, but soon realizes he's been manipulated by the White Queen, and he and Warlock team up for a rescue mission. The Avengers, summoned by Emma, end up grievously injuring Warlock, and Magneto surrenders to protect him. After the misunderstanding is cleared up, Warlock's friends recover their sanity with help from Magneto and Emma working together. When the New Mutants are kidnapped and brainwashed by the interdimensional slaver Mojo, only Warlock and Doug manage to escape capture. 
Warlock offers to merge with Doug and enhance his mind to free Betsy Braddock, Mojo's prisoner, but warns Doug that the merger could, inf could infect Doug with the transmode virus inherent to all technarchs, turning him into a techno-organic being himself. Doug accepts the risk and successfully rescues both Betsy and the rest of the new mutants. He doesn't seem to have been infected once the merger concludes. Following the 1986 franchise-wide event Mutant Massacre, the Magus returns to Earth to claim Warlock once and for all. The new mutants teleport to Ilyana's realm of Limbo to escape, but the Magus is able to follow them there and ends up infecting many denizens of Limbo with the transmode virus, breaking Ilyana's control over the dimension. Warlock is finally able to defeat his father by merging with Doug again. Doug decodes Warlock's DNA like a language and rewrites the Magus's own techno-organic genes, regressing the alien dictator to a harmless child. In the 1987 New Mutants Annual, Warlock gets into a shape-shifting contest with the Impossible Man. Don't worry about it. Warlock then pivots into the miniseries Fallen Angels by Joe Duffy and Carrie Gamble, in which he follows after fellow New Mutant Hiberto da Korshta, a.k.a. Sunspot, after Beto quits the team and leaves the school following an accident. Acting as a guardian angel for Sunspot, Warlock teams up with the titular Fallen Angels, a mutant street gang. But he's really more of a background character here. By the end of the miniseries, they elect to return to Xavier's. Under new writer Louise Simonson, Warlock and Sunspot return to the school to discover the new mutants mysteriously absent. Over Magneto's objections, they track down the rest of the team and arrive just in time to join the battle against the mad scientist called the Animator. While they help their friends defeat the Animator's armies, Doug is shot and killed in the crossfire in New Mutants 60, the climax of the New Mutants part in the franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, and Warlock is devastated. Warlock's unable to understand the human concept of death, and four issues later in New Mutant 64, he's perturbed by a zombie movie that shows corpses rising from the grave. He breaks into the funeral parlor and tries to reanimate Doug with some of his own life glow, but it doesn't work. Desperate to wake Doug up, Warlock then merges with and animates Doug's corpse, and takes him to see his mother and their teammate Rain Sinclair, aka Wolfsbane, Doug's recent love interest. Rain is aghast, but manages to explain to Warlock that Doug is really gone, and the body is just a shell. She convinces him to return Doug's corpse to the funeral home. Warlock is largely a background character after the death of Doug, assisting the team through the franchise-wide event Inferno and joining them in abandoning Magneto and the Xavier School after the kids lose faith in their headmaster. They soon find a new mentor in the time-traveling soldier Cable, and Cyclops invites them to use the basement sublevels of the destroyed X-Mansion as a base of operations. In the 1990 franchise-wide event Extinction Agenda, Warlock, Wolfsbane, and their new teammates Richter and Boom Boom are captured alongside Storm by government agents from the anti-mutant apartheid state Genosha which has joined forces with the X-Men's enemy Cameron Hodge. Warlock manages to break his friends out, but he's weak from the Genosian experiments and insists they leave him behind to get help. Recaptured by the Genosians, Warlock is strapped into a machine by Hodge, who hopes to steal Warlock's shape-shifting power by harnessing the transmode virus. The process will kill Warlock, and while Wolfsbane manages to disrupt the transfer, it's too late to save her alien friend, who disintegrates into a pile of ash. After the defeat of Hodge and the liberation of Genosha, the New Mutants scatter what they manage to recover of Warlock on Doug's grave. Shortly thereafter, Louise Simonson is pushed out of the franchise and departs Marvel Comics. Four years later, during the franchise-wide event Phalanx Covenant, writer Scott Lobdell introduces a new character called Douglock. The Phalanx are a new techno-organic threat created by anti-mutant scientists, a hive mind in part derived from some of Warlock's remains left behind on Genosha. Somehow, the phalanx has assimilated Doug's mental engrams, producing a phalanx drone who looks like Doug and has some individuality within the collective. With the help of the android terrorist Zero, don't worry about it, the drone splits himself off from the hive mind and unlocks Doug Ramsey's information in his databanks. He's then intercepted by Excalibur, a team including Doug's close friend Kitty Pride, who's deeply disturbed by this creature who seems to be a techno-organic mockery of Doug. Douglock continually frustrates Kitty with his inability to remember Doug's life, She's sympathetic to his plight, however, and invites him to stay with Excalibur as part of the team. 
Doug Locke joins them as they team up with X-Factor and X-Force, and Rain is thrilled to see Doug Ramsey apparently back from the dead. Douglock explains he's actually a phalanx-interpreted amalgam of both Cypher and Warlock's minds and genes. He then pretends to betray the team in order to trick the phalanx collective, infecting Rain and Cannonball, with their permission, with a tiny amount of transmode virus so they can sneak into the phalanx base. Douglock sacrifices himself to destroy the phalanx, and then manages to pull his body back together from the wreckage. Under new writer Warren Ellis, Douglock ends up captured by the rogue espionage agency Black Air, and is handed over to the London branch of the Hellfire Club. Margali Sardish, the club's Red Queen, uses Douglock as a power source in her efforts to summon forth an ancient demon, but don't worry about it because this plot doesn't go anywhere as Ellis leaves the title. Douglock continues to develop as an individual, and a memorable fill-in issue by writer Keith Giffen features Kitty finally accepting that Doug is dead and Douglock is someone new. Under new series writer Ben Robb, his friendship with Rain begins to develop into romance. When some time travel shenanigans in the miniseries New Mutants Truth or Death, also by Robb, bring Warlock and Cypher from the past to the present for a bit, Douglock is further emboldened to declare himself as an individual. His relationship with Rain is unfortunately put on pause when her foster mother Moira McTaggart, infected by the rapidly progressing legacy virus, decides to lock herself into quarantine to research in safety. Rain refuses to let Moira go into quarantine alone, and locks herself into the containment lab as well, distressing Douglock. He spends the next several issues trying to break open the secure lab, finally achieving his goal thanks to files Zero had downloaded into him back during Phalanx Covenant. Rain is enraged that Douglock has delayed Moira's research by opening the lab, but Moira convinces her to forgive him at Brian Braddock and Megan's wedding in the final issue of Excalibur, 125. As the team disbands, Rain and Douglock stay behind on Muir Island with Moira. In the 1999 X-Men Annual by Alan Davis and Rick Leonardi, Douglock is kidnapped by the Red Skull and manipulated with pieces of a cosmic cube, and honestly, don't worry about it. What matters is that the experience awakens something within Douglock, who suddenly understands who he really is. This leads into a Warlock solo series by Louise Simonson and Pascal Ferry, where we learn Douglock is actually Warlock, implanted with Doug's memory engrams to trick the X-Men. Warlock visits Doug's grave to see if Doug is still infected with the transmode virus and therefore possibly can be resurrected as well, but finds the virus has been wiped from Doug's body, perhaps as part of the phalanx's creation of Douglock. Warlock decides it's his responsibility to prevent humans from weaponizing traces of the phalanx left on Earth, and comes into conflict with the nefarious Project Mainspring. He rescues one of their test subjects, a mutant girl named Hope, not to be confused with Hope Summers, truly do not worry about this Hope, who became resistant to the transmode virus and now has the ability to spread it. He also rescues her transmode infected monkey, Chi-Chi, who you don't have to worry about either. Anyway, Project Mainspring's attempts to control the world with the transmode virus end up awakening the phalanx, and while Warlock and his companions destroy the new phalanx communications tower, they're too late to stop it from calling the Magus. The Magus is back to normal now, for some reason, and is even more intent on destroying Warlock because he's been contaminated by the Phalanx and by the Douglock process blending human DNA into him. Hope's able to use her power over the transmit virus to rewrite the Magus's DNA, again, to make him part human as well. This outrages the Magus, who flees back to space. Warlock and his new friends, Hope and the telepath Simon, that's Simon with a P at the beginning, declare they will protect the planet from the transmit virus, but the series ends with issue 9 and none of these new characters ever appear again. Eight years later, in the 2008 Marvel Cosmic event Annihilation Conquest, written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, Warlock returns to the abandoned planet Kvich, K-V-C-H, presumably named for his co-creator Bill Sienkiewicz, the homeworld of the Technarchy. Only one Technarch remains, a youth named Tyro, and Warlock adopts the boy as his own, infecting him with Warlock's own programming to teach him empathy. Warlock helps the hero Nova suppress his own transmit virus infection, but declines to help Nova battle the phalanx, wanting a simple life on Kvich with Tyro. 
Nova's allies Gamora and Drax are also infected with the transmit virus, however, and end up accidentally summoning a Technarch, Tyro's father, who seeks to destroy Tyro. Warlock sacrifices himself to cure Nova's transmit virus so Nova can save Tyro, giving up all of his own life glow. Tyro is devastated at Warlock's death and is emboldened to defeat his own sire dam. After seizing his biological father's power, Tyro is able to cure the heroes of the transmit infection and also resurrect his adoptive father, Warlock. Warlock and Tyro then team up with Nova and his friends to purge the Kree galaxy of the phalanx. The following year, in the franchise-wide X-Men event Necrotia, Doug Ramsey is resurrected by the wicked Selene using a combination of sorcery and the transmit virus. This draws Warlock to him, and Warlock is able to free Doug from Selene's control and purge the virus from his body. They rejoin the New Mutants as part of Zeb Wells' ongoing run on the title. Warlock's mostly a background character in this run, but has a memorable rematch with Cameron Hodge during the franchise-wide event Second Coming. Doug convinces Warlock to drain the immortal Hodge's life glow to stop him for good. While Warlock succeeds in killing Hodge, a feat previously thought impossible, he's traumatized by the experience of taking a human life. Warlock continues to be part of the team as Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning follow Wells on the title. Warlock has a few starring moments in this run, including a battle with an insane bird brain, don't worry about it, and a major plot involves a possible future version of Doug, the evil true friend, who has gone mad and is employing Warlock's technology. In the final issue of New Mutants Volume 3, issue 50, Tyro returns, overtaken by his sire dam's mind, and there's a big fight where Warlock uses his version of the transmit virus, again, to rewrite another technarch, again, and healing Tyro. The day is saved, again. Warlock and Doug then pivot into the short-lived all-new X-Factor by Peter David and Carmine Gian Domenico, where they have a love triangle with Danger, the artificial intelligence that evolved out of the Danger Room, and I simply don't want to talk about this. In Matthew Rosenberg's run on Kenny and X-Men, Warlock ends up merged with one of Jamie Madrox's dupes, who the group begins calling Warlocks. He's murdered by Sentinels, but don't worry about it, because after the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Warlock resurfaces alive, disguised as wearable technology employed by Doug. It's not entirely clear why Doug is hiding Warlock from the rest of Krakoa, but we do see Warlock idly infecting some of the Krakoan foliage with the transmode virus. In the 2020 franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, Doug is selected by Saturnine's Prophecy as one of the sword-bearers of Krakoa, with Warlock as his sword. Warlock reveals himself to the Krakoans who are to serve in this capacity, but it turns out not to matter. Doug's challenge is not one of combat, but one of love, as he is tasked with marrying the Araki warrior woman, Bay the Blood Moon. Warlock reacts jealously to Doug's marriage, and has spent much of Vita Ayala and Rod Rice's new run on New Mutants trying to fill the void with new friends. After Doug and Bay make an effort to reach out to Warlock, things seem to have mended, but the phalanx appear to be on the horizon, and they have always taken an interest in the rogue technarch who can feel. X-Men, X-Men! And we're back! I hope you enjoyed that journey through Warlock's self-journey. I am glad that this character is back to basics now. It has been a really wild ride for this character. And I think that where he is right now is exactly really where that character should be, vibe-wise. As opposed to where we've been. I mean, it was, it was really, I would say from the moment he died to the Zeb Wells run in the middle there, it's like, what's going on? I mean, Doug Locke is very much a different character in a lot of ways. Yes, it's interesting, you know, people asked, oh, you didn't cover Douglock in the Cypher episode. I'm like, no, I didn't, because Douglock is Warlock, not Cypher. And that's pretty emphatic, but it's more complicated than that. Like, that's what the story tells us. I read him more as a, a merger. Of, well, it depends on, it's ontological, right? Because it depends on how you view 
the phalanx engram replication process. I think that phalanx candy southern in Uncanny 306 is candy. Other people might argue that it's a copy of Candy, that it's not really Candy. I think it's her, and I think Jean, reading her mind, is able to confirm that, that something intrinsic to Candy has actually been assimilated into the collective. I think similarly that Doug Locke is in part Doug because he is in part Doug's consciousness. The cipher part of Doug Locke gets kind of excised in that 99 annual. And then by the time of the Simonson solo, I think it's pretty emphatically like Doug Locke wasn't Doug at all. But when I really got to know both of these characters, it was as Doug Locke because I didn't read New Mutants until I was a little bit older. Whereas when I was like eight or nine or whatever, I'm buying Excalibur off the rack I knew who Cypher and Warlock were because I actually mentioned this in the Magic episode. The trading cards would have like a page of important characters who had died. And so there was a really memorable, I forget which year it was, but there's a beautiful Cypher card that is based on that story where he's like a ghost in the graveyard. The card was just, as opposed to most of it was like, here's the character fighting or whatever. But Doug's was... Here lies Douglas Ramsey and like sort of a phantom Doug morosely hovering over the grave. It was a very striking trading card if you were a kid. Are you thinking of New Mutant 63? It's the 1990 New Mutants Annual. Oh. Rain helps like settle his ghost. Yeah, that's a weird one. It's a very weird one. (laughs) That story's by Peter David and it's very like... Very early in Peter David's career. It's more of a Wolfsbane story. Anyway, we don't have to talk about it. I'm just saying that was the trading card that, I, and that was like my image of Cypher. Warlock, I read Extinction Agenda pretty young, but it's just like he just dies. and Like he's heroic and sacrifices himself to save them yeah. all. But I didn't get to read the like, sell friends, what's going on material until I was more like 12-ish when the event trades started coming out and I could get like Fall of the Mutants and all of that stuff. Yeah. Inferno, you know. So what I first knew was Doug Locke, and I liked that character actually quite a bit, especially in the Alice material. I thought that his dynamic with Rain was interesting. I thought the ontological question of who is this person was interesting. Kitty's obsession with proving that he really is Doug, Doug Locke saying, I really don't think I am, and all of that. It was an interesting interplay for me, but he really is a different being in terms of how he's written. He's almost their child more than he is either one of them. He's this mashup and he's angstier. Well, he's not angstier than Doug. He's not <laughs> angstier than post-resurrection Doug. Right. But he's angstier than than like pre-death Doug and he doesn't behave like Warlock. Right. So he's just sort of this anomalous character. Yeah. He's this character who is living with people who constantly have existential doubts about who he is, whether he's real, like whether he is who he says he is. And he's drawn as someone who's almost like a tragic hero or a sacrificial victim. He's not, he's has the body of warlock, whatever that means for, you know, right. warlock's body. But he doesn't behave like Warlock, and he doesn't really behave like Warlock until, I think, after X-Men 99, when the entity that was Douglock 
experiences a personality change after being taken over by Red Skull and being locked again into this giant control network that he doesn't like. Mm -hmm. I'm not the right guest for this, but I'm tempted to say you need a third episode on Doug Locke because that is a, <laughs> a different personality from either of them. I would say at this juncture, I'm not planning on that. No, but you're not planning an Amara episode either, and she's real. I'm thinking ahead of like what I'll do for the Amara episode. Okay. A Doug Locke episode, I think, would be complicated because I don't know that there's anyone who has a really strong connection to that character. No, I'm, I'm not. He's such I'm, a flash in the pan. You know I'm what not, I mean? I, I wouldn't tell you how to do your job, and I also... I'm not <laughs> Doug Lock episode, but I don't feel like Doug Lock is Warlock. Doug Lock doesn't feel or read like like Warlock, even though Doug Lock is part of Warlock's story. The reason I bring it up is just because I was very disappointed when Doug Lock turned out to just be Warlock and they got rid of Doug Lock and just started writing him as Warlock again in some way. You know, now that mini it's not I guess it's not really a mini, it's like a maxi, it's like nine issues. That Warlock solo that Simonson did in the late nineties, yeah, uh, in ninety-nine. It's weird because it doesn't always read quite like Warlock either, but it definitely doesn't read like Doug Lock and definitely felt like we were like the Doug Lock thing's over. And as someone who had gotten invested in Doug Lock, my thing is just that I, this is just a bridge I'm going to have to cross whenever I get to Rain and Amanda Sefton and Pete Wisdom. I'm just hesitant to get into the Warren Ellis of it all because I really that's loved right. that stuff. And right now that's pretty raw for a lot of people. And so I just... I'm taking a light touch with that at the moment. With a couple exceptions like the bar scene, which I love, my experience of reading the Warren Ellis Excalibur is an experience of wanting to take those characters, wanting to take Kate, wanting to protect Kate from him and wanting to punch Pete <laughs> Wisdom. I reread a good portion of it for the Moira episode and I found that it does not hold up. My attachment to it is primarily nostalgic. But, you know, it's a complicated, it's a complicated subject in the yeah. same way that Lobdell is a complicated subject. But with Ellis, I think it's very like fresh and present and current to a lot of people. And yeah. so I just I try not to dig too deep into yeah. that. I mean, also, like Ellis seems to have brought personal obsessions and personal failings to a particular run of a comic he shaped for a while. Well, it's very, I mean, we, you know, not to get back into the Kitty Kate of it all, because we did a whole episode that people should go back and listen to. It's episode 25. But Ellis sort of precedes Whedon in that way, where I think that yep. he's working out a lot of stuff through Kitty that does not serve her as a character. Yeah. Let's leave it at that for now. Point is, this is not a Doug Locke episode, is what I'm saying. Exactly. Thank you. I was afraid you'd insist that I talk about Doug Locke a lot and that none of that is my favorite material. It's good for some of the other characters. I think it's the best material Rain has after Inferno, period. Until, again, like this year. That's fair. Doug Locke is more like the Vision than he is like Warlock. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a great comparison. He's actually a lot like the Vision, particularly in that his primary plot is a romance arc with rain where it's like can i love this robot basically you know and having had his origin in this massive evil yes well that's the thing that i do think is important is that doug lock there's a question about this later i've skimmed through the questions but like the question of the technarchy and the phalanx is something that confuses a lot of people and that's because it's been retconned heavily several times the current situation that we're in as of powers of 10, this is a yeah. very recent, Yes, it's Hickman cleaning it up basically. Right. In the original Phalanx Covenant, 
basically a bunch of humans turned themselves into phalanx using samples of warlock's body that had been preserved after extinction agenda when he was killed by cameron hodge it becomes clear over the course of phalanx covenant though that they've tapped into something that already existed that there is a broader phalanx already out there in the universe the implication in those 90s stories is that the phalanx are an offshoot of the technarchy that rather than the technarchy's really like brutal individualism of like kill your father has become a really enmeshed hive mind that's where it really is just the borg and the borg at that point are something that have existed on star trek that's right the way it has now been changed by hickman specifically is that a phalanx is a type of civilization the phalanx will always arise just like sentinels the concept that hickman is putting out there that homo novissima techno-organic ai is something that always evolves in every timeline a phalanx is a type of heightened higher level civilization it's like a world mind kind of thing and the technarchy or a technarchy, because again, the implication is that there are different phalanxes and different technarchies. A technarchy is basically the cleanup crew that a phalanx employs. The technarchy isn't aware. The Magus has no idea that he was created by a phalanx or that he's serving a phalanx's purpose in the destruction that he carries out, but that's what's going on. And so there was a lot of confusion in a recent issue of S.W.O.R.D., fan confusion when Abigail Brand explicitly refers to the phalanx warlock species and people were like wait 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 is that and the point is we've simplified it now and the technarchy is like a subset of the phalanx which is a broader concept I think that works better because if one is an offshoot of the other the technarchy with its really insane patriarchal violent thing that you identified earlier feels like an evolution of the culture rather than the other way around. It feels like phalanx drones attempting to find an individuality. And that to me is logical because then Warlock as the mutant technarch is the one who finally does have an individuality and empathy for other creatures. And like, that's what they're sort of evolving toward from the phalanx, which is entirely dispassionate and hive-like. I think that's right. But the point is, if you're confused, that's because it's confusing. And until literally 2019, no one had ever actually explained how it works. Abden and Lanning try to explain how it works <laughs> in, in when they're writing Nova. Yeah. Which is a significant part of Warlock's story, which we should probably get to. Yeah. Their idea of the relation between the Phalanx and the Technarchy is different and not as good. Right. This, I think, is just better. I agree with you. It makes the phalanx into a kind of, the phalanx are like a nation and the technarchy are like its military. Correct. And, and, and I love the idea of them being dupes, like not in the Jamie Madrox sense, but in the sense of like the technarchy thinks it's this incredible conquering civilization, but it's actually just the foot soldier infantry of this much more thoughtful and methodical race of beings that, let it believe that because it's useful that it believes it's independent. That's right. I think that's fun. That's right. And and we can go from that back into, if you want to go there, my favorite non-Duglock. Yes. Warlock stories. And the surprise to me is that there are so few of them. <laughs> After Slumber Party and New Mutant 64, the amazing story in which 
Warlock refuses to accept that Doug is dead. He can't understand death, yeah. And it reanimates the corpse to show it to Doug's mom and to Rain, because maybe that'll wake Doug up. Yeah. Wheezy has said that they got more complaints about that issue than anything. Like Parents were incensed about that issue because it traumatized like a whole generation of children. Sure. But it's great. It's really fucking good. It's one of the best things that, that she's done for Marvel. I would agree. Other than Slumber Party and I think that issue was actually called Reanimator. I'm, I'm not. I forget what it was called. It's actually called Instant Replay, which is not what you would anticipate. It's New Mutant 64. But I think it's because like he sees Night of the Living Dead and then like reenacts it basically. That's, right? That's right. The cover says the resurrection of Cypher, yeah. which is quite misleading. <laughs> in the but in the, in the way that all the best covers are. Yeah. New Mutants 21, Slumber Party, New Mutants 64, the exhumation issue. A couple of the Abnett and Lanning story arcs, uh, the one where they go back to Doug has a dream where he has to go back to Paradise Island where Doug died. Mm-hmm, to the animators island, not Wonder Woman's, just to be clear. Right, not Wonder Woman's, but if he called it Paradise <laughs> Island. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's not. There's no Amazons there. Just Bird Brain. Yes, Warlock and Bird Brain <laughs> is sick because he's been infected by a, a virus that for once is is not exactly techno-organic, right. <laughs> where Warlock has to have a kind of sit-down therapy session in Doug's mind with Doug. The Abnett Landing Run is so full of therapy sessions, it's pretty amazing. The Return to Paradise Island and the True Friends arcs at the end of Abnett Landing, and then the current stuff with Warlock and Doug and Liana and uh, Doug having to learn to use a sword and Warlock's behavior in the last couple issues of New Mutants where he's trying to have a new best friend. Mm-hmm. Those are the best Warlock stories. I think he's a character who has had most of his best moments in ensemble pieces. The moments that are absolutely crucial to his development in the Asgardian Wars and then in New Mutants Annual 2, which are both moments where he decides to merge with Doug in a new way. Those are ensemble moments. And I guess New Mutants, I guess the second one, the, the um, Wild Way story, mm-hmm. that is one where it's just Warlock and Doug and they have to rescue people. But it's certainly more of a Doug story. I mean, that story is about Doug and Betsy. Yeah. And the True Friend story is also more of a Doug story. Stories starring Warlock are almost always about his relationship with Doug and involve decisions Doug has to make. Or they're about his relationship with the Magus, his Technarch father. Right. And their relationship with Tyro, his Technarch adopted son. Mm-hmm. And those stories are the same story every 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 time oh i should add one there's one more thing that i should add which is new mutants war children which is a claremont mm. kevish nostalgia collaboration that came out recently i believe last year that is an interstitial story involving iliana and doug and warlock and doug and warlock being unable to harm each other because they're so close as part of the denouement that is a very good although predictable yeah it's 2019 time at this point i think covid has just yeah. like dilated time so much that i never know yeah i just looked it up because i was like let me double check that was 2019 it is claremont and sincavitch reuniting i liked it it's a cute one shot yeah i think that you've identified the key stories i would add though the shadow king karma 
arc, which is a fraud arc, obviously, for a lot of reasons. You know, lots of people don't love reading that arc. But there is a pretty critical moment there where because of Warlock's alien nature, the Shadow King really isn't able to influence him. I reread that this week. Mm -hmm. Warlock saves everyone by disguising himself as Lyanna. And it's the first time that Warlock has been able semi-credibly to imitate a human being. I believe the Mm -hmm. next time Warlock imitates a human being for any extended period, it's going to be a New Mutant 64. And it turns out that he's imitating Rick Ocasek. (laughs) I asked ex-Twitter and the answer I got was he looks like Rick Ocasek. It is the first time that Warlock has a starring role in anything where they're not just like where he's saving his friends from not himself. I would call it the second because the other story I want to identify, and this is one that, again, a lot of people don't like, but that I quite like, is the Kulan Gath arc in Uncanny X-Men, which I talked about in the Selene episode. It's actually important to the plot that much like later we encounter this with the Shadow King, Warlock is one of the only people who Kulangas spell does not ensorcel. Like, he can't be overwritten in that way. So he's walking around like, what's going on with cell friends? After Celine pulls her switcheroo and all of that, the way that it's all finally defeated and we save the day is Warlock, who has been really fucked up by Celine, offers to infect Storm with the techno-organic virus so that she can stop Celine because the techno-organic virus makes you somewhat resistant to magic, right? Right. He says to her, progressive systems collapse, life go quickly fading, beyond hope of restoration, but another way. Aurora, self, can make you a being like self. Your life flows strong, vital, you can act. Self-doomed, world may yet be saved. Must warn though, process irreversible, once transformed, never again can you become human. And she reaches out and says, there are worse fates and takes his hand and he infects her and she does it. Dr. Strange and Ilyana managed to reverse time and fix that so it's not a problem. But I like that bit for a couple of reasons. One is the great storm moment. Two is it's a great warlock moment because he has clearly adopted this planet as his own. He's like dying to save this world and all of his friends. And It's the same exchange that he has with Doug in New Mutants Annual number two when they merge in the Wild Ways story is he says, like, there's a chance that you may be permanently infected. And Doug takes Warlock's hand and says, there are worse fates. And I think it's interesting that it's a beat Claremont repeats twice. Yeah, it's okay to not be human. Right. That's fine. If we can save the world, that's fine. You are absolutely right. And I had sort of forgotten the Colin Gaff. Well, a lot of people do. That's why I was like, wait, we have to talk about Kula and Gath. And you're absolutely <laughs> right. And you get like extra muffins for that or extra. Love whatever. that for me. So the the story I would have, I think it's New Mutants around like 24, 25 or 26 or something. I would have the, the Shadow King New Mutants arc where Warlock saves the day by imitating Ilyana so that Ilyana can bring everybody else. It's 32 to 34. I would have that up there, except that it is unreadable for me because of the fat phobia because of the karma stuff yeah i get you it's just something that should not have been published and it's a shame because the iliana moments and the warlock moments in it are so good but it's just one of those it's one of those stories where it just shouldn't have happened and there aren't a lot of claremont stories that i feel that way about 
Yeah, no, I think that's entirely fair. That's why I prefaced with, I recognize this is a story some people just really hate. Yeah. But it's a great warlock story, I think. I, I We are on the same page with that, yeah. But so many good warlock moments are moments because when warlock is the center of a story, it's not just that he's always fighting the Magus who's always coming back. <laughs> And has to be defeated in the same way, as you point right. out. Like, it's always, it's Doug figured this out in 1980-whatever. Why are we doing it again? Because it's always the same thing. We have to download the language of the Magus and reprogram him into something else. Yeah. Every time. And physically, it's even more specifically repetitive. You have to physically put some combination of Doug and Warlock physically inside the Magus so that the Magus will acquire different programming or different genes or different stuff. Be regressed to childhood or become more empathetic or whatever. Like it's always the same beat again and again and again. It's happened yeah. like four times. Yeah. And it's boring. <laughs> it was cool the first time. It was great the first time. I think the first time is New Mutants 50. That sounds right. I think it starts in like the mid 40s and resolves in issue 50. Yeah, it was great the first time. But when Abdon and Landing take Warlock into space and take him to the Technarch planet to raise his son Tyro as another kind Technarch. And the Magus shows up, they have to do the same thing again. No one can figure out any other winning move. And it's like playing D&D, which I do and I enjoy. But the monster shows up and you have to know that you fight vampires with moonbeam and like certain kinds of traps. You need to use mage hand. It's like you need to know the one spell that will beat this monster. That's okay for an RPG, but you, there's no reason to stage that again. And it's disappointing that people keep doing it. The one thing that Abnan and Lanning do with Warlock in space that I love and this, to be clear, I, I, I want to explain for listeners who may not be following us 100%, this is not in the Abnett and Lanning New Mutants run. Yes. What we're talking about right now is in the Annihilation Conquest stuff that Abnett and Lanning do as part of their Guardians of the Galaxy Marvel Cosmic. It opens up the Guardians of the Galaxy. Abnett and Lanning are writing Nova. Right. They introduce Warlock and Tyro and the Magus and the same plot, the same, like, Warlock has to fight the Technarch's plot. And then it comes back later at the end of the Abnett Lanning New Mutants run. Uh, oh, Magus shows up, yeah. And, and Tyro does, yeah. That's, that's right. And it's, it's almost, that's a New Mutants 50 as an homage to the earlier New Mutants 50. Mm -hmm. They're very conscious that they're writing New Mutants 50. And when Abnett and Lanning do it in New Mutants 50, it is an afterthought. It's, oh yeah, we have to fight the Magus. That issue I find kind of generally weird, that New Mutants Volume 350. Like, it's just sort of, it's weird because I feel like they must have known the book was ending with 50, but it does feel sort of like they weren't ready. I get, like, almost, like, it's almost like, oh, shit, we're here. It's issue 50. We got to do all this now. That's right. It feels like they had other plot lines ready that they couldn't use because the book ended, and so they just Yeah. Which is, I'm okay with that. I like the we're going to throw a party. I mean, I love a party issue. We love Slumber Party. Like, there's nothing better to me yeah. than an issue of the X-Men. I mean, I love that Ladies' Night issue where they go to the mall in the 80s. Like, I love stories like that. So I'm not complaining about it. Yeah, absolutely. My least favorite part of, of the Abnett and Lanning New Mutants 50 is when the Magus shows up because they have to have a fight. So they fight the Magus and they defeat the Magus. Again. Again, yeah, in the same <laughs> the same way. And it's... Is it the Magus 
or is it Tyro possessed by the Magus who needs help getting rid of the Magus? It's Tyro possessed by the Magus. I want to say they get they end up yeah. they end up purging the Magus from Tyro, Tyro. or yeah. something and you like can call that. It Tyro because they say it's Tyro and because he looks like an anteater instead of like a giant troll. It may now that I'm now that I'm thinking about it, it may actually. God, it may like be Tyro's sire dam who isn't the Magus. Uh, hang on. I've got New Mutants 50 in front of me, and we're going to find out. Warlock says, self-friend remade through trauma, stronger, better, like the New Mutants, because he's been through a lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I Doug says, I just used my experience of my future self to help Tyro overcome his patriarch. Yeah, I think it's not the Magus. It's Tyro's biological, techno-biological sire dam. That's right. As opposed to Warlock, who's his adoptive father. But it's the same fucking plot again. So, like, again, it's totally just the same thing. And Tyro has appeared one-third of Azaladane, so we don't have to get too hung up on Tyro, I don't think. But it's true what you're saying, which is that Warlock is almost always a supporting character in stories about Doug or occasionally about Ilyana once or twice. That's right. And when he has stories that are about him, they're almost always a repetition of that initial story about the Warlock and the Magus again and That's again right. and again. I do want to say the one good thing that Cosmic Marvel does with Warlock, which I appreciate, he gets to meet Adam Warlock. Yes, and talk about like Adam Warlock and the Magus, which is fun, right? Because that's yes. honestly one of the weirdest things in Marvel is that there are two Warlock Magus dyads like that. I mean, I get that they're synonyms, right? So it's an appealing name scheme to use. But is it like a reference to something else, though, that I'm just not getting? I don't know. It may be a reference to some like classic fantasy stuff. some like classic sci-fi thing that i just don't know if it is right in listeners if i'm just missing yeah. a uh and i'll i'll read on a future episode because i do feel like they must both be referencing something but i don't know what it is yeah i am just kind of begging some writer and i don't think this is a video thing necessarily i am begging someone to tell a warlock-centered story that isn't about fighting a technarch sire dam by infusing the genetic material of kindness or babyhood or something. Mm -hmm. My list of warlock moments is large and, and, and growing uh, and growing now in current new mutants. My list of great warlock stories is weirdly small. Like there are moments in the, the, the new mutant shadow King story that are great. There are moments, wonderful moments in the Asgardian saga, almost, Every time we see someone drawing Warlock in the first few years of, of that character's existence, it is a visual spectacle. And I you know, read those comics. Oh, also Fallen Angels. Warlock shows up in Fallen Angels. He does. He's really fun. But it's a story about Beto, not really a story about Warlock. Again, Warlock is wonderful in ensemble pieces. And there are characters... There are characters who feel underused and Warlock has enough appearances and is distinctive enough and people love drawing him that it's weird to say that Warlock is underused, but I'm going to say that he's under spotlighted. It's not like Sean, where Sean is just not around, yeah. you know, like where is karma is more of a question. Whereas with Warlock, 
he's always there. He's just not usually doing anything about himself that's super yeah. of consequence. Yeah. A problem when you're trying to center Warlock is that he's almost invulnerable. Mm-hmm. He's very powerful. Warlock has to be, if you're going to have a, a physical fight, Warlock has to be protecting vulnerable bioorganic life forms because unless you're attacking him with cosmic marvel, like Technarch or Galactus or something, almost no power on Earth can hurt him. And the reason that he's always in peril and that he's, or that he's always involved in a, a perilous situation is that he's so much about protecting his friends. He wants to protect self-friends. I mean, that's why Extinction Agenda, where he dies, I think really works because they're all very vulnerable in that situation. I mean, they don't, you know, they've been disempowered. He will not allow himself to be taken over and have his powers used by Cameron Hodge. So correct. it goes very fast. It's a very fast-paced thing, but he will, he, he seems to be choosing to die. Yes, I agree. I believe it's already Liefeld. It is, yes. It's early Liefeld, which I think is pretty good, personally. But Yeah, and Warlock, in terms of how Warlock is drawn, Liefeld is not interested. No. My understanding is that Bob Harris also wanted to get rid of the non-mutant characters because he thought that the X-Men had gotten like sort of off-mission under Claremont over time. So that's why they get rid of Longshot also over in X-Men. There was a sort of attempt to specifically refocus the line on human mutant characters. I'm just going to sigh very, very heavily. (laughs) I mean, that's why Excalibur gets rid of Cerise and Fer. It's like, we have to refocus this book into an X-Men in Britain book. Well, and that's when Claremont leaves. All of that is when Claremont leaves. Yeah, yeah. you leave, you, you reading, reading sort of X comics from 89 to 92, whenever I read, read any of, of that material other than early Excalibur, I end up feeling like I would quit too. Well, Mirror Island Saga is rough. That's where they start rewriting the plot for him. And you can tell because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is gold in doing a, a, a book with Warlock and someone who's not Doug or a book with Warlock and like two mutant characters who are not Doug going off and having adventures doing really almost anything other than fighting Technarchs. The Warlock solo series, which is not at the time of broadcast, I think on Marvel Unlimited. I don't believe it is. A lot of late 90s stuff simply isn't on Marvel Unlimited because it hasn't been collected because they need to do the digital recolors. They're starting to do those epic collections. Like, I I mean, they just started on Gen X finally. So hopefully, I mean, now that they are full steam ahead with X-Men again in a way that whatever they may say, they very clearly were not for a long time. I think we will see all of that stuff collected in the next five or six years, basically. But it might take a minute. The Louis Simonson, um, I'm going to pronounce the name of the artist wrong, like Pascal Ferry. Pascal Ferry, I think. Pascal Ferry, yeah. I don't love the art. It looks like a Saturday morning TV show. It's very Joe Mad-esque. Or at least it's trying to ride, I think, that wave of like late 90s sort of manga-influenced Marvel. It's of the time. Yeah, it's not good. And it really looks more like a DC book. It looks like a second-tier DC book. And it doesn't get Warlock out into the world interacting socially with other characters. It does take him away from 
the X-Men for a while, and then he interacts with Kitty, as she's called then, and with Rain, and with Moira. But the interactions aren't terribly interesting, and they're all in the service of protecting this new character, Hope, and her pet monkey. Chi-Chi. Chi-Chi. And of fighting three different menaces who have to be fought except when there's guest stars like spider-man shows up and like they fight the mole man and they have a fight in the metropolitan museum of art it's fun but it it does not realize this character's potential in the way that for example the chamber miniseries really gets that is great at yeah other characters would not be able to go I think that the Warlock Maxi is in the service specifically of decoupling Warlock from Douglock and being like, Douglock's over, we're not doing that anymore. Therefore, we're going to create sort of this new version of Warlock who, who we can use as, as an important character, but then they never do. Like, Hope and Chi-Chi never appear again. All of it feels very, like, you could, here's the thing, it's not on Marvel Unlimited, but I got to be honest with you, you don't need to read it. Like, it's completely non-essential to the arc of the character, you know? It's not clear to me, honestly, even that Abnett and Lanning or Vita... Ever read it. Ever read it, because no one cares. No, when, when by the time Warlock pops up again, he's just Warlock from the 80s. Yeah. And it's not... There's no attempt to reconcile it with late 90s warlock or with Doug Lock or with any of that it's just a reset and sometimes I think that's a fine I think that when a character's continuity has become really gnarled it's often fine to just say you know what moving on yeah especially if it's stories that no one was particularly enthusiastic about right. like I think it's fine that they ignore most of the Inhumans versus X-Men era plots because the fans didn't like them yeah. so why dwell on a period of storytelling that no one was that invested in and that you can just ignore. I like Sapna. I would like Liliana to be able to go back and help Sapna again. I really like that stuff. I don't like when they make Ilyana be like a mom. I find that Ooh. odd. I think it's playing against type. I think arcs where Ilyana is trying to protect children definitely work. And I think the very literal this is a little girl being corrupted by limbo of it all worked, but I just don't, I don't like when Ilyana is maternal. It feels wrong to me. I think it feels wrong to her, but this isn't the Ilyana episode. Here's my thing. If it felt like it was about that to me, I would like it more. To me, it felt softer than I like Ilyana to be as a character. That's all. I just also don't like children particularly like child characters are not, it just doesn't do it for me. So I was just kind of like, why are we talking to an eight year old? Like, I don't want to do that. I want to throw every eight year old child in a comic into limbo and have them come out age 16. Like that's my, you know, the only, the only one I tolerate now is Maggie Braddock because she's a delight and is like an actual character because she has a super brain, even though she's like two or three. But otherwise I'm like, Toss them into limbo, send them with the Ascani to the future, whatever you got to do, we got to age up these kids. I think now is a good time to get into the listener questions. We'll be able to get at some of the themes we put pins in earlier because people have thoughts about these characters. So here's something just for the listenership going forward. 
I need these episodes to not be over four hours long. I can't do it anymore. I simply can't. I can't keep up this pace. It's not that I don't love the four-hour episodes. The reason they're four hours is because I didn't want to cut anything because I thought they were so good. However, if I'm going to be on a weekly schedule, it's simply not feasible. I have a day job. I have a social life. I have to run errands. I have like tasks I have to complete. So I've tried to do as many questions as possible each week, basically. And I think I just can't do that anymore. So I am going to cap the questions every week. That's just a PSA about new developments on the podcast. Thank you for your patience. And I'm sorry if you don't get your question read, but we're at a point now. I mean, listen, I'm so grateful. We're at a point now that I get upwards of 30 to 40 questions each week about each of these characters. So I just want to make sure that the episodes don't slowly start creeping into five hours or something. Like, I just can't do it. Almost like Warlock just needs to stop fighting the Magus so that he can have a social life. I agree. Mid Andrews writes, hi, Connor and Stephanie. A couple questions about Warlock. How and why is Warlock so disconnected from all the various other techno-organic virus storylines? Aren't they all ultimately from his species and in some cases him personally? That's a fun question. I think that most of the time he is connected, but it is odd that all of the techno-organic stuff with Cable never has anything to do with Warlock, especially given that Cable like mentors Warlock initially for that brief period before Extinction Agenda. Oh, yeah. But Warlock is very intimately tied into the Phalanx stuff. I feel like those plots do usually involve Warlock or Duglock. Yep. But I agree that the cable of it all, it's odd that there's never really been a connection there. Where Warlock is personally present, his goal is not to infect anyone with anything ever. Mm -hmm. Warlock is in stories where he's indirectly the origin of a techno-organic virus, which is how Inferno starts. Right. Right. Uh, He is connected. Yeah, the Magus infects Sim and some of the other demons of Limbo, and Limbo is overtaken by the techno-organic virus. The transmit virus infecting Sim is why he's able to keep Ilyana off her throne, because she can't kill him. Right. So there, Warlock is involved. I think that stories involving Cable tend to be stories about fighting and being warlike and training yourself to face the worst and shoot it. Yeah, Warlock rather than Warlock. Right. And he doesn't necessarily fit into those stories. Warlock really doesn't. You do see Warlock becoming tanks and guns, but that's not what he wants to do. And the people who really want to tell Warlock stories, I think, are different writers from the writers who really want to tell Cable stories. Yeah, I would generally agree. Cable stories are stories about survival and being tough. Being tough and surviving isn't generally a Warlock problem as long as he's got matter to consume right it's protecting his friends another question mid asks is has there been any mention of warlock's homeworld and species since the phalanx offshoot showed up or have they pretty much just retconned warlock and the magus into weird specific instances of the phalanx so we've gotten into this a little bit but basically the answer is if you go to annihilation conquest you'll see like technarchy specific stuff as of house of x powers of 10 the Technarchy officially has been retconned into a subset of the Phalanx. I think that works much better than the Phalanx being a subset of the Technarchy. So I think it was a smart fix. I think going forward, especially after that line from Abigail Brand, we're probably just going to refer to Warlock and his people as Phalanx because it fits thematically more easily with everything that is going on with Homo Novissima and Moira and all of that stuff. I'm fine with that. Don't worry about it, basically. 
it creates more plot opportunity for Warlock for him to be tied to the broader phalanx as opposed to the Technarchy being a discrete entity. Mid then says, Doug was my identification character in New Mutants back in the 80s. And in heterospect, my fascination with the Doug and Warlock merging may have been a sign. I really hope someone figures out what to do with Warlock now that he and Doug are both back in circulation again. Thanks for all you do. Love the podcast, Mid. That is exactly what's happening in current New Mutants. And it's so good. But Warlock hasn't had a ton of focus, admittedly, yet. Right. Vita is doing sort of a revolving cast thing that I think is really smart. And I have no doubt that Warlock is going to get a bigger story at some point in the near future. Probably next year. It looks like Ilyana's next. And then it's going to be Warlock or Jimmy, right? Like, the focus keeps shifting. Or Rain. Like, they have these individual arcs that focus on one of the characters. Which is, is how, you tell a good, how you tell good stories in a book like that. However, Warlock of all of the OG New Mutants, is the one who should not be looking after children, who does not have a vocation either as a teacher, the way that Danny does, or as a self-conscious example for other mutants to follow, like Sam. Warlock probably long-term doesn't really belong in the cast of a book where the other New Mutants are teachers. Which is also true of Roberto, who is in space and we've barely seen him. And Doug could be a teacher, but he's busy doing something that is far more central to the government of Krakoa. So as much as I would trust Vita to write the phone book. The phone book, baby. write a warlock-centered story in Current New Mutants, I would also be delighted to see Warlock and Ilyana or... Warlock and, frankly, Colossus would be interesting, or Warlock and Longshot, or Warlock and just anyone. Warlock and Cable, frankly, at this point, like, let's see what happens. Warlock and one or two other characters, Warlock and Laura, go and have adventures that are not part of the New Mutants cast, that are not about fighting the Technarchs, and that are not, you know, that are not necessarily on Krakoa. Yeah. Let's see what happens. I would personally, as the line continues to evolve, like, I think it would be, well, here's actually what I'm going to say. The really big question mark that we haven't brought up yet is that at the beginning of the Krakoa era, Doug was hiding Warlock from everyone, and it wasn't clear why. And we've seen Warlock infecting some of the Krakoan foliage with the transmode virus, and we don't know why. We also know that Orcus is tied unaware orcus doesn't know that they are but orcus is serving the purposes of the phalanx right based on the covers that have been solicited for 10 lives and x deaths of wolverine which feature phalanx circuitry and given that hickman is tying up a lot of his moira stuff it seems in inferno the question will be whether whatever revelation about the phalanx is about to transpire in Inferno is going to dramatically alter what's up with Warlock as a character. And that's something that we simply can't know at this stage. If the phalanx become a big existential threat going forward, I would like to see him helping Brand and Storm and those characters deal with it in the space stuff. I think that would be a cool place for him i think that getting him away from the new mutants characters might be the best like i think that abnett landing and annihilation conquest had a good idea which is that if he's with his self-soul friends he's really in the service of their stories most of the time and i think that pulling him out into a new context might be a good way to push the character forward that's right i would like to see him be in a guardians of the galaxy book 
or something like yeah. Just you know, I would like to see his face or in something like Sword. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Is like put yeah. him out there. I would love to see him in Sword. I'm realizing as you say this that I tend to see him and like my friends tend to see him and, you know, fanfic writers for what it's worth tend to see him. And frankly, Doug tends to see him as someone who belongs with his cell friends as this mechanical alien, wiry, shape-shifty, good non-binary boy trying to make his way in the world that he crash landed on. The other way to see him is as someone who unwillingly or not represents the advance guard of the invasion of the machines who come from space to right. Earth. And he doesn't want to be that, but he is. I think that you could do a lot of interesting, like, seven of nine type stuff with him if the phalanx right. are a big threat, basically. That's right. That's from Star Trek Voyager for the kids. And I'm not suggesting you go back and watch Star Trek Voyager. You don't have to do that. But yeah. seven of nine was cool. You should watch this, <laughs> story, but there's no Warlock character discovery. Well, and unfortunately, it's hard to watch Discovery because it's not on TV. It's only on CBS All Access or oh, Paramount yeah. Plus, whatever it's we called. We shelled out for it. But... I get that. But, like, you know, I do think we're hitting, like, peak streamers and there are just too many. And at a certain point, some of them are going to have to, there will have to be, like, a culling. <laughs> no more streamers. Yeah, right? 90% of the streamers lose their powers. Exactly. We're only 10% remain. Sam Guido writes, Dear Connor and Stephanie, Warlock's one of my favorite new mutants. I love that the mutation that sets him apart from the rest of his people is his compassion and empathy. He's such a sweet character, and I'm so glad he's back in Vita's New Mutants. I also love how queer he and Doug are. Warlock's ashes were literally sprinkled on Doug's grave after he died, which is incredibly gay. I was initially disappointed when Doug married Bay the Blood Moon in Ten of Swords because I was so much more invested in his relationship with Warlock than in any kind of romance between Doug and a woman. However, now that I've had more time to think about it, I wonder if keeping Doug and Warlock's relationship vaguely queer and undefined works better than making them literally a couple. So much of the queerness in their relationship comes from things like them merging together to form one being, or from Doug being the only one who could speak Warlock's language. Maybe something would be lost if their relationship was explicitly defined as romantic. What do you think about Warlock's queerness? Is it better if it's left undefined and somewhat alien and inaccessible to the reader? Sorry if that question was a little rambly. I love the Cape Pride episode so much, and I'm so excited to hear both of your thoughts on my favorite techno-organic alien, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I take this first? Is that okay? Take it. Yeah, go. Okay. I love the queerness in their relationship, too. If you're reading X-Men, and if you're reading for characters who have more than bit parts all of the queerness is going to be subtextual and that's okay. And if you've been reading <laughs> X comics for long enough, you learn to look at your favorite same sex couples and say, of course they're getting each other off off panel. Of course they are erotically intimate and romantically linked. They just don't say it when the camera is rolling because that's not how a Marvel comic works. So I think that Doug and Warlock's relationship is really unusual. I think it's very queer. I think it is romantic. I think there are a lot of ways you can headcanon when did they realize that they were in love and when did they talk about it and how, what does it feel like when their bodies fit together and any way you want to headcanon that is fine with me. But taking as read that they're a queer couple, that they are a romance, that there is an erotic component to their repeated merger, which is how I read it, taking that as read, I think the plot where Doug is... The plots where Doug is into girls in the 80s and the plots where Doug is into girls, because this happens a little bit in the Abnett and Landing New Mutants, 
and the big plot where Doug is married to Bay the Blood Moon and Warlock has to suck it up are great and realistic and they're what happens when you have a gay teen super crushing out on and dating a bisexual teen. Right. I don't think they were a couple because I don't think Doug thought of it that way. The relatable part of this story to me is, yeah, if you read Warlock as the gay kid and Doug is, I wouldn't even say bisexual. I think that he is um, primarily a straight guy. Whatever boundaries of sexuality you want to apply to people is fine. I think he would think of himself as a heterosexual person. He, like many guys who think of themselves as straight and guys who I would call straight, have sex with other boys when they are teenagers or experiment with other boys as teenagers. And it's not something that continues into their adult life. I, as the gay kid, certainly had experiences with men who I 100% do believe are heterosexual and who, as far as I know, beyond what I got up to with them when we were teenagers, have never been with men ever. So I don't know that I would call that a bisexual person. You know what I mean? I think that for Warlock, the tragedy is that sometimes when you're that gay kid and you and a close friend of yours have an intimate and sometimes sexual relationship, whether or not it's a relationship relationship, eventually that friend may outgrow the experiment and you realize, oh, this isn't an experiment for me. Like the hypothesis is confirmed, right? And you want to be a couple couple but that's not the parameter the relationship ever had to this other person. And that's kind of how I read it. Even in the 80s, because it feels like to me like Doug is looking at Rain as like a romantic prospect and Versus Warlock Kitty. or Kitty, but it becomes clear pretty quickly to Doug, I think, that that's not happening. That's right. You know what I mean? That's right. But I do think that for Doug, the idea that like Warlock could be my romantic partner is not something that occurs to him. Whereas I think that to Warlock, it's intrinsic to the way that he sees Doug because Warlock is learning what these... Fe- it's actually a lot like Richter and Shatterstar in terms of how Niciesa initially planned out that arc and how it was going to go, which was that Shatterstar was gay, didn't understand human sexuality because it was alien to his experience, and that Richter was going to have to explain to him we're best friends and I love you, but it's not like that because I'm straight. That was the plan. Uh, Niciesa related this on this very podcast. That was what he had wanted to do with those characters as a way of showing the readers, it's okay if your friend is gay. It's even okay if he has a crush on you. Don't be homophobic. That obviously went very differently after Loeb decided it should be more romantic and then Peter David made it explicitly textually romantic. But... I do think that that is what's going on here, is that even if Doug is sexually experimenting with Warlock, Warlock is the one who's kind of left holding the bag. And that's what I think is really, really true and queer and interesting about the marriage plot with Doug and Bay and the way that Warlock has reacted to it. Because it is that feeling of, this person who I had this really meaningful adolescent sexual experience with has chosen a heterosexual life, and I don't know how to deal with that. That was brilliant. You completely called it. That's exactly <laughs> what you called it. And the only thing that I'd add is that the degree of physical connection between Doug and Warlock, where Warlock is not only a sort of kind of lover, but they don't call it that earlier in Doug's life, but also a prosthetic. 
Yeah, also like a clothing item yeah. that Doug wears, yeah. you know? Or yeah, like a prosthesis that Doug uses to manipulate things. And again, they came back to that in Ten of Swords. Like self will be the best sword ever. Like use me, swing me, hold me in your hand, yes. you know? Yes. Roscoe Gorse writes, I'm English, so you can try an accent. Hello, Connor and, <laughs> Hello, Connor and Dr. Bert. First off, I'd just like to say that the Kate Pride episode was my introduction to the show and really spoke to what makes her my favorite ex-character, as well as hearing perspectives on her I'd never thought of before and that now helps shape my view of the character. Thank you. Also, thank you for explaining mechanics, because I probably won't ever read that book. Now, <laughs> a lot of people don't. I reread it for that episode, and I actually think it's like the art is not my favorite, but I think the writing, apart from like, it has that aughts Claremont like pro cop edge to it, but otherwise, I think it is pretty solid writing wise. I mean, it is Kitty being fucking horrible to yet another emotional support lesbian, but that's just you know par for the course. For her. <laughs> we we uh, we're just gonna keep talking. We're just going to keep talking. Now on to my question. Though it wasn't strictly my introduction to the X-Men, the 90s cartoon was my introduction to the larger X-Universe, Warlock included. And in the episode in which Warlock makes an appearance, they're paired up with Beast? So my question is this. Would there be any validity to that pairing in a story? I think that 90s Beast and Warlock would be pretty boring, but with the current, much more morally ambiguous version of Beast, could they actually make an interesting team? Love the pod and keep up the great work, Roscoe Gorse. So... I forgot about that episode because I quite honestly, I'm like not, I was never as into the cartoon as most kids my age were because I had read the comics and I was that kind of annoying nerd kid. He was like, that's not what it was like in the comics. So, you know, and I didn't know how good we had it because that X-Men cartoon is much more faithful to the comic than any other X-Men adaptation that ever came out afterward. Yeah. But anyway, reading this question, I got chills because the idea of Hank McCoy, as we know him now, manipulating and weaponizing Warlock makes me want to, more than most things Hank does, put Hank McCoy in prison. I'm like, no, 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 you may not. You may not speak to that little robot boy. You may not make eye contact with him, frankly. Fie on thee. So, yes, but... But it could be a great story. It could be a really great story. It could be a great story because Warlock is so easy to manipulate. Yes. Hank has to try so hard with Sage. If Sage finally flips on Hank and is like, you know what? No, fuck you. I'm not doing that. And Hank is like, well, who's going to do it now? Trinary is too smart. I can't trick her either. Warlock has these powers. That could be cool. And who does Warlock come to first? when Warlock realizes that Hank is not really someone you would trust to look after your pet snake. Right. I love pet snakes. No <laughs> slurring pet snakes. <laughs> you could also, if, 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 if the questioner wanted to ask about 90s stuff, you could do this with Dark Beast too. You know, I just, I'm sure he'll come back eventually because people love that character. But the thing about Dark Beast is that to me, at this point, the much more interesting villain is our Beast. I agree. You know? Also, seeing Dark Beast get killed in the Rosenberg Uncanny was... He did, but so did Warlock. Sure, but... (laughs) And so did a lot of characters, is what I'm saying. The, The question with Dark Beast is, like, you'd have to find a way to resurrect him. And on Krakoa, they are not going to want to do that. No. Because, like, he's... 
A, from an alternate universe, B, evil. So, like, you know, why would they do that when they already have a Hank who's a lot of a handful to deal with already? They would find an excuse the way that they found an excuse not to resurrect Madeline, is my guess, if it comes up. That is both of our take on the potential connection of Warlock and Beast. Yeah, the idea makes me shudder, but it could be a great story. Yeah. Patrick Beekman writes, Dear Connor and Stephanie, I'm so excited you decided to do an episode on one of my favorite self-friends, Warlock. The OG New Mutants team, especially during the Sienkiewicz run, was so dark, and adding Warlock gave the series a much-needed injection of levity. His conversations with the Blackbird and random kitchen appliances are so charming. Yes, yes, yes. My question is, do you think that the relationship between Warlock and Doug was supposed to have LGBTQ subtext? As a gay kid, it held a mirror up to so many of my own experiences with friends that I definitely read it that way. Do you think that in the late 80s, it was easier for Claremont to express this dynamic using the two most innocent and naive new mutants? I remember feeling so close to friends growing up, but knowing I could never cross that invisible boundary for fear of rejection. When Doug gives Warlock some of his life glow, neither of them know what the consequences will be, and they're both frightened, but they do it because they love each other. I always found that comforting as a queerling that someday I would have a male relationship where we truly felt like a merging of souls. I know this is long, but it's just something I've been pondering for decades. Anyway, I truly love your podcast. It's been a highlight of my week through all these troubled times. Thank you so much for the bottom of my heart, Patrick Beekman. We've said this already, and I'm only raising it because I wanted to get at specifically the word supposed to. Chris Claremont has said that the queer themes in his work at that time were not always intentional, but that he likes that people have found them and he thinks it's cool. Other times... Every so often, they were accidental. Here's the thing. I think a lot of the time, they're accidental with the male characters. I think Charles and Eric, it's there intentionally. I think that there are things that vibe that way with the male characters that don't feel as intentional on Claremont's part in the way that Kitty and Ilyana or Kitty and Rachel or Storm and Yukio or Storm and Callisto all feel very deliberately intentional. Anything and everything related to Opaluna Saturnine or Opaluna Saturnine. That stuff is definitely intentionally there. I don't know. That's why I said we'd have to ask him. I don't know if that was the intention. I don't know if the transmit virus and HIV thing that stands out to me was in any way intended. Here's what I would say is I don't think it matters because it's there. Like what you just identified about why you related to it as a gay kid is what's in the story. There is this obsession we all have with like what's canon and what did the writers intend? And I'm not immune to that. That's why I like having them on the show so I can ask them those questions. I got Mike Carey on this show and said to him, is Tempo a lesbian? And he said, that was my intention, yes. And the internet suddenly erupted with, oh great, Tempo's confirmed a lesbian. You also could have just read the comic where she's clearly a lesbian. (laughs) But there is this there is this idea that we need the sign off from the creator. And I don't think we do. But I understand the desire to get it. And the reason I try to get it often on this show is because I know how many people feel they need that. I know how many regressive people will only grant something if a creator is like, oh, yes, I meant that or it's always been that way or whatever. It's almost like if Warlock were wrapping himself around me to create a suit of armor so I don't get killed by Asgardian warriors is almost what it's like. It's like you set up, you get yourself, you get your defenses up intentionally, but I don't think you need them. I don't think it's something that we should be too concerned about. And I don't know if Claremont did that on purpose. I do think he was not especially concerned with like, I'll do this with the naive or sweet characters because 
most of the gayest, queerest, most bisexual, whatever you want to call it, characters in the Claremont run are villains. Mm. And the others are Kitty and Ileana and Rachel, who I wouldn't say are especially sweet or naive, any of them, honestly. That was great. Should I add to it? Yeah, add to it. Oh, and obviously, and Storm and Yukio, who are definitely neither sweet nor naive. <laughs> and neither is Callisto. I mean, none of that stuff is innocent, yeah. you know? Storm's always good, but she's been through a lot. Yeah, she's a good person, but yeah. she's a very sexually aware person also. That's right. So Claremont in that era doesn't hit male potential queerness quite as hard as he hits sapphic relationships. He's a good enough writer... And I wouldn't say this of certain other X writers, but he's a good enough writer by that point that he has to know what he's doing when he's creating these kinds of subtextual environments. I can't imagine he'd be surprised if you asked him, like, wow, that never occurred to me. You oh, know well, there's I mean? an interview from 1982 that he cited in some academic stuff I'm doing where he says in 82, in, it's in those X-Men companions, uh, lately we've started to get letters from gay readers saying that yeah. they see themselves in 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 x-men books and like that's fine i think there's no way to write the physicality of the relationship between doug and warlock without seeing it as homoerotic yes i agree that's not the same as having that be your primary goal it's certainly not the same as having doug think of himself as gay which or as even bi which for reasons connor just gave like headcanon he probably doesn't your headcanons yeah. you know are just as valid as mine but yeah that's my it's physicality that's so essential to understanding claremont i think because transformation of the body is claremont's prevailing obsession i mean to go to that karma story that you hate so much which i understand why you hate it listen i mean i get it yeah. it is though another case where a character is physically transformed in a way that they find disgusting. That's Ilyana's whole arc, is I'm being turned into a demon. And with Ilyana, it's great. Yes. The thing is that all of these stories have a kink element to them that is really profoundly there. I mean, he's talked about how Dark Phoenix devouring that star is a cosmic orgasm, right? Like, yeah. there is a sensuality to his work, and specifically a fetish sensuality that is just undeniable by the 80s in particular yep. really the second we meet the hellfire club it's off to the races right yeah. and i think that you truly can't read the merger of doug and warlock as non-sexual at all like you have to see it in that context i think in the same way that the way mojo and spiral shift betsy's body in that story that new mutants annual and merge her with their technology in the wild ways has like a rapey quality to it. There is a sexuality to the violence there yeah. that is not gratuitous. I'm not, I don't think it's like in it, but it's just something sensual and tactile about these transformations that makes them very intimate. And so, yeah, I don't know that he intended these characters are going to represent a gay experimental relationship yeah. Or if he just is always writing from a perspective of these bodies are merging in intimate, sensual ways. I like that. And I want to open up a third option, which is that New Mutants comics in particular create a space for experiment and for kids who are trying to figure out who they are and how their bodies work. Yes. It's what the book's about. It's what the book is about. And only one of the... Oh, like only one of the original New Mutants cast makes sense to me as 
as straight. Like the other ones head cannoning everybody as some. I assume you're talking about Sam? Amara. Yeah, okay, fair. Sam and, Sam and, Roberto, Sam and Roberto have a thing that... By original cast, I wasn't counting Magma. I was like, who could it be? Because of that cast from the graphic novel... Oh yeah, no. there's not a straight there's oh, not a straight person in that bunch. None of them remotely know. I like Amara more than you do, but that's a low bar. Um, I mean, here's part of it though. It's funny to make fun of Magma. At this point, I just enjoy it because she does suck so bad. But like, there's something I wouldn't talk about her at all if I didn't find that funny. Like, there are plenty of characters who are dreadful, but I don't talk about them because they're boring. Yeah, Magma's at least amusing to discuss. I think I could fix Magma. And so when we get to the Magma episode, I'll talk about how I think we could fix Magma because I do think she's fixable. I think that you have to just lean into the things about her that are terrible and funny and stupid, you know? This is how I feel about a lot of characters. It's like trying to escape from the weirdness of these Claremont characters is never serving the characters well. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, I would subscribe to that. Rachel writes, hi, Connor and Stephanie. This isn't quite a question, sorry, but I wanted to bring up one of my favorite Warlock moments, which is in the New Mutants special edition in 1985, where he gives himself women's swimwear in human form, and Magic tries to explain to him why such clothing is incorrect for him. And then he gives himself cut-off jeans that are, like, ten <laughs> sizes too big. Yes. It's so good. He doesn't understand what she's getting at and simply changes from a one-piece into a bikini as she walks away. This then prompts Doug to share with Ilyana how he doesn't want to laugh at Warlock for doing such things because others have laughed at Doug in the past. I find it interesting that Doug's rumination on his own insecurities and experiences with bullies are prompted by observing Warlock's gender nonconformity. There's occasionally some interesting gender play with Warlock in classic New Mutants, and that scene always jumps out at me in particular. I really don't have a specific question. I just love to hear your thoughts on Warlock and gender because it's something I think about a lot. I personally think an interesting take is if Warlock considers himself male because Doug is male and hasn't really thought much about what gender actually means to him personally instead of in relation to the most important person to him. I kind of interpret Warlock as by default being like, I'm a guy because Doug is a guy. And maybe he's never really taken the time to think about his own personal relationship with gender and stuff. But that's literally just something I thought up. So who knows? Thank you as always for the amazing content. Sincerely, Rachel. Right now, I am looking at that beach scene and looking at the panels in which Warlock, uh, he's got a one piece, and then he's got the giant, like, size 40 cutoffs. And this is when he has shapeshifted into, like, a human-looking form here right. for the visual, if you haven't read this comic. Right. And then he's got a bikini that looks exactly like Liana's bikini. Mm-hmm. Just quite revealing. Warlock was created by beings without biological gender who are very patriarchal and starts going by he, him, either because Doug does or because in 80s American English, when you don't know someone's gender, you say he, him, even though you say they now. Right, because he was default. That's default, right. In like Strunk and White or whatever, you know? Exactly. Warlock has been thinking of himself as he, him, and consistently uses he, him pronouns in the comics so we kind of have to do that. But there's something deeply non-binary and outside human gender to all of Warlock. And Warlock is a wonderful figure for non-binary identification, you know, whether or not Claremont wanted it that way. The moments where Warlock does something embarrassing, which in that amazing, that's one of the great Warlock stories, and it's an ensemble story, uh, in the Asgardian Wars, which have to do with like the wrong kind of swimsuit. Those are both moments where like your friend who you love has fewer social skills than you and is more embarrassing and is like more nerdy than you. And what do you do? Which is a very Doug and Warlock problem. 
And there are moments when you don't know what the social norms are and you think maybe if you were cis, you would know, but you're trans. So you're just like, what, what do I do? One of the little tropes in my life that sort of connect me to Warlock in this way is me remembering moments before I was out to myself when I didn't know what to do and realizing that one of the reasons I had was was lost was because I was never a guy and I didn't know what guys are supposed to do because I'm not a guy and Warlock is not a human guy either although Warlock is not a human girl I'm trying to think of how to phrase this you know I had um like a moment in my early 20s where I wondered if maybe like when when you said like figuring out you're a girl I had that moment that I think many gay men have where that question does occur to you am I a trans woman is that something that I identify with and ultimately I decided I I didn't think so but it was something I thought about and I think that when you're having that either confusion or just interest in figuring out what's going on with you and your relationship to your body it makes a lot of sense to be drawn to a character like this who is not human oh hell yeah a shapeshifter like this who is in that scene becoming human looking but still can't quite understand the gender norm of the situation i can see the resonance there yeah and you can get even more specific than that because there are people whose sense of themselves and their pronouns and their identities are partly technological. The poet Jillian, I, I, I want to pronounce Psy name correctly, uh, Jillian Weiss or Weiser, uh, who's really talented. Jillian Weiss, assistive technology is part of Psy body and Psy has decided that Psy is cyborg and that Psy's pronouns are Psy, 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 C-Y. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And especially if you're someone who relies on assistive technology in your daily life in a way that's visible or unmistakable. I think that even if you're not super gender nonconforming, my body is not this human body and doesn't work right. And it embarrasses my friends when my friends are immature about it is a warlock experience. Absolutely. And I think that the techno-organic virus generally is used to that end. It is why cable has a prosthetic arm is because his arm was eaten away by the techno-organic virus. There's a way that the transmit virus as a motif connects to questions of disability kind of repeatedly. I mean, if you look at Hodge, like Hodge's quest when he is destroying Warlock in Extinction Agenda. He doesn't want his body to be destroyed again. He wants Warlock shape-shifting powers. Correct. He is just this living eternal head yeah. on a robot body that he is disgusted by, which is why he hangs the little cardboard suit in front of himself to feel normal, which is a great, weird, gender dysphoric kind of moment yeah. there, right? Yeah. The specific power that Hodge is trying to steal from Warlock is the ability to transform his disabled body into something he feels good about. Oh, you're right. You're right. It's always there, I think. Not the right, which is also a Hodge thing. No, the right is also Cameron Hodge, but no, I'm I, correct is, I think. The, <laughs> we got that? away from the question, which is, thank you for the question. That was great. Great question. I think you're right that Warlock's conception of himself as male is connected somewhat to the desire to be Doug's best friend and understanding that boys are best friends with each other and girls are best friends with each other, at least in the normative American sphere in the 80s. You know, he looks around and sees, well, Danny and Rain are best friends. Yeah. Sam and Beto are best friends. I'm Doug's best friend, so I'm a boy. I do think that's definitely part of it. I think that's right. 
I think that's right. Mike Layton writes, Hello, Connor, an esteemed guest. Happy to see season two going strong and just as happy to have access to the secret files via Patreon. It was truly worth every penny and I'm learning so much that it's inspiring me with my own creative projects. Well, that's really sweet. Aww. Thank you for letting me know and best of luck with those projects. Warlock is interesting as my first exposure to the character was in Exiles where Warlock had merged with the legacy virus. Good call and created what could be considered the first Marvel zombie plague. I always remember hearing a quote about Warlock, that he's such a flexible character when it comes to design that there's very little you can get wrong. What is your favorite design of Warlock? And what's something you hope to see with the continued relationship with not only Bay and Doug, but with Krakoa? Thanks and continue being awesome. Cinema Freak X from the Discord. What a great set of questions. Second one first. I want to see Warlock have adventures that don't depend on his relationship to Doug, especially since Krakoa needs Doug and Doug needs Krakoa, and Warlock may or may not need Doug, but Krakoa doesn't need Warlock. Correct, and in fact, Warlock may be bad for Krakoa, because what yep. we're seeing is whatever Warlock's been doing with the foliage for whatever reason, in the most recent issue of X-Force, it became very clear that Black Tom, who is connected to Krakoa in a symbiotic way, is infected with the transport virus. So I am not caught up on X-Force. Wow. Oh, yeah. No, Black Tom is having weird disruptions in his mind that seem very mechanical. It's like, yeah, shit's getting fucked up. And so I think, in fact, Warlock may be actively dangerous to Krakoa. So it depends on what the, again, I think Inferno or 10 Lives X Deaths are going to answer some of the phalanx questions that were raised in Hoxpox. And I think Warlock is central to those questions. We so may be headed we'll for see. a future where Doug has to be on Krakoa and Warlock has to be off it. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I think that would be an interesting plot, wouldn't it? That would be an amazing plot, and it would be really sad. It would be incredibly sad, but it would also, I think, be really smart for both characters. I agree with you, and now we're going to go to the design issues. I love the Sienkiewicz Warlock. Everybody does. Sienkiewicz introduces the character. Warlock needs to be either really expressionistic with wires all over the place and clearly distinct from the human characters and clearly sort of expressionisty, shape-shifty, almost painterly or sketchy like in Sienkiewicz or in, I think, when Mary Wilshire and other later New Mutants art artists are being inked by Sienkiewicz. Yes. Um, it, 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 Sienkiewicz, when Sienkiewicz is inking Warlock, it doesn't matter who the penciler is. He looks That's correct, because the ink is going to do the effect no exactly. matter what. And that's where we've been going when we see Warlock in New Mutants right now. Rod Rice is leaning into that really hard, and it looks great. Right. The other thing that you can do, and Brett Blevins does this sometimes, and Art Adams in the Asgardian Wars did it mm. for real, and I love this, is to make Warlock extremely precise and you are drawing an unusually colored machine and it's almost like you're looking at a special effects model from a 70s or 80s science fiction story where they use a lot of practicals and then you can have him turn into realistic or almost realistic refrigerators or telephones or umbrellas or helicopters or whatever else. I love that. And I don't think that Warlock should look cartoony, like something out of animation or simplified, or especially Warlock should not look especially 
curvy. Warlock should not look like something from a sort of Disney rubber hose animation ever. I think Blevins leans a little too into that. I agree. Warlock, Blevins' Warlock is okay. Art Adams' Warlock is great. You know what I actually like? I like in New Mutants Annual 2, the Wild Ways story, I like the way Alan Davis does Warlock, which is very different from how other people do. He almost looks like he's made up of little, like, pieces. Like, it's almost like he's a like an amalgam of, like, little creatures or something like a like a hive or like it's it's very different and it looks cool to me you can't go wrong with alan davis truly never in my opinion yeah i would be happy to be drawn by alan davis same draw me any day alan yeah he would make my shoulders look incredible alan davis if you're listening I'd like to be a little bit curvier with even swoopier hair i'm working on <laughs> well he would give you astounding hair that's something that nobody does yes, like alan davis. that's what i want but yeah so those are there's a lot of good Warlock whenever Sienkiewicz is inking, and Art Adams is great. He is very badly served visually in the Abnett and Lanning New Mutants, even though I like the way that he's written. And he's okay in the cosmic Abnett and Lanning stories, but not great, partly because everything is cosmic and he doesn't stand out as much. And he's not good in the Simonson written solo series because he's just not weird enough, except when he's becoming something. And when he turns into, in the Simonson solo series where Pascal Ferry is drawing him, Pascal Ferry does draw Warlock turning into a raincoat, a taxi cab at one point, and turning into various kinds of airplanes. And that's fun. But when Warlock is just, you know, alien good boy with two arms and two legs, he's not interesting there. He's just not wiry or weird or expressionistic enough. And he needs to be in his three-dimensional world, but not of it. And he needs to be a creature of technology, not a creature of biology. Quinn Hester's writes, Hey, Connor and Stephanie, long-time listener, second-time caller here. Something I find interesting about Vidal and Rod Rice's run on New Mutants is his exploration of characters who are usually paired with other characters as individuals. Yep. Warlock is struggling with life without Doug, Gabby Kennedy is trying to figure things out without Laura, and No Girl seems to have finally grown beyond being an accessory for Ernst. I was wondering, are there any other characters that are treated as parts of pairs that you'd like to see explored as individuals? Do you think they could make it on their own, or are they destined to be tied down by their other halves? I feel like Skids is definitely in that category. Thanks, Quinn, slash Xbrix. Justice for Skids. Free Skids from Rusty and Skids. Free her. Agreed. There are a couple options here that jump out to me. I am really excited to see more of Megan without Brian. I love Brian and Megan together, but I like that Brian is sort of retired at this point and that Megan is still actively superheroing. I think it's cool to have the mom be the one who's more active. I think that that's like a fun thing. Another thing that they're already doing is I love that they've separated Rogue and Gambit. Yes. I think that's really, really essential for both of those characters because when they are together... I think it is impossible not to see them as a set. Well, and they separated them without breaking them up. Right. No, they're still married. It's just like they're in different books, which is fine. You don't have to do everything with your partner to be into them. You can leave in the morning and come back at night and play with your cats. And it might cause problems in their relationship, but that's story. Like, that would be cool. I'm not saying they should break up, but like, you know, if Gambit is 
annoyed that Rogue is so preoccupied with the X-Men or if Rogue is annoyed that she can't get a hold of Gambit because he's in Fairyland. Like, I think that there's ways you could make it a complication that could be interesting. And then at the same time, you have them having adventures by themselves. And I think that's good. Yeah. Two characters they have already done this with, again, also, are Havoc and Polaris, who are for the first time in a very long time having big adventures of their own that don't involve the other person at all. And I think that that is great for both of those characters as well. In terms of who I'd like to see it with, that's a little tougher. I'd like to see Jean doing more without Scott. I don't think that we've seen much of that since they got back together. I liked that Halloween issue of X-Men that was about her primarily and that wasn't really about him at all. He was asleep. I'd like to see more of that just because I think that when you're Scott Summers' girlfriend, it tends to swallow up your role in the narrative. I think this also happened to Emma in the Utopia period. And it was very good for Emma as a character to break those characters up because she has a much more active role in the story now, I think, than she did, unfortunately, once she sort of became the first lady of mutants. Stephanie, do you have one that you'd like to see parceled out? The question was specifically, what inescapable duo stories... Would you like to see them doing their own thing more? Yeah. So we talked about Doug and Warlock, and we talked about Gabby and Lara, and my next answer is karma and her family which has finally happened let's you know justice for karma you kind of did that episode mm-hmm. like, let's see karma have an adventure that's not about her blood relatives for once right i would like to see richter and shatterstar back together but catch up are you caught up on excalibur uh no i'm like two issues behind are they yeah are no they again it happened yes it happened yeah it happened uh-huh ah! yes i'm somewhat satisfied <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you covered it in terms of couples that we've seen too much of the couple. There yeah. are all sorts of characters who I would like to see out of context or away from their original teams, but that's a, a bit different. Like, I think there are so many Academy X characters who were underdeveloped. I think that Cy Spurrier is already doing wonders for Pixie as a character by plucking her out of that group. I mean, she's one that it's been done with before. Yeah. But, I mean, I am really, really keen to see whatever is about to happen with Soraya, hopefully, in the continuation of that book. Because she had such a big, fantastic moment in the Onslaught Revelation finale. That's a character who has never been really allowed to flourish without her class that was last week's episode it was last week's episode in terms of like duos though oh you know i would love to see i mean we're about to get it i'm excited to see aurora without north star yeah that's almost never happened the one time it did was the Thierry weapon x and we'll get into that in aurora episode someday but i'm not looking forward to it you know we've seen north star without her Yeah. But it's rare that she has a story that is not involving him. So I think that will be cool to see now that she and Dokken are getting on Kate's boat to venture off into parts unknown. I think that will be, I think that will be interesting and I'm excited to see that. And what was the last one that occurred to me that I thought I was like, oh, that would be good. You're good on this. 
I mean, I, I do this every fucking week. I think about these characters a lot. Yeah. No, I just don't <laughs> want to break up quite as many uh, duos. But No, well, but I think part of what's cool about Krakoa is that they've been throwing people into new social situations right. that they weren't in before. Like, the idea of, like, let's do a book about Warren and Monet, those are two characters who, as far as I know, have, like, never really interacted before. Yeah. And yet I found the dynamic between them fascinating and fun. Yeah, yeah. I love how the questioner noticed something that Krakoa era books and especially you know, the best ones have been doing. And they've also been putting back together people who maybe been together and haven't interacted for a while. Yeah. Where do you want Rachel Summers next? Where do I want Rachel Summers next? Yeah. Uh, in Betsy's bed is where I want Rachel Summers. I want a U-Haul to be sitting outside the lighthouse after Inferno is what I want. While that is valid i think there's a conversation <laughs> that kate has to have about that i don't think it's any of kate's business frankly i mean i am with you in terms of getting rachel and betsy together more to the point i'd like rachel to be back with megan it's not actually like just about betsy it's that i like rachel and brian and megan in a book together again would make me so happy oh yeah yeah like rachel and megan had such a beautiful friendship in excalibur particularly yeah. in the davis run yeah, which makes me think, you know what? I, I would like to see Kate and Nightcrawler like working together some more. Oh, me too. I'd love to throw Nightcrawler onto that boat, but it seems like he's going to be busy for a while. <laughs> I would love a Nightcrawler like on the pirate ship guest spot, though. I would love that. And you know what else I'd like to see? Getting back to what this episode's supposed to be about. Nightcrawler and Warlock have a lot to talk about. Oh, that would be fun. Warlock doesn't understand human religion, and why would he? He doesn't right. understand. Everyone looks at me and thinks, what even is that? But I'm going to just try to be me. And Warlock is clearly uncomfortable when he has to imitate a human and prefers not to. Mm -hmm. I think that Warlock and Nightcrawler could have a really delightful chat about science and religion and about how to be an adult and about what to do when everyone's staring at you. To go back to the fallen angels of it all for a second, I actually, I mean, I'm just dying to see Ariel of Coconut Grove on Krakoa, period. But I think that Warlock and Ariel as alien mutants are characters who could have a really interesting dynamic that was not explored fully in Fallen Angels because Warlock wasn't a focal character. We know Ariel has an X gene from the carry run, so the Coconut Grove aliens are at least partly human descended or whatever, but I think the idea that I'm not from Earth, but I am a mutant of my species, and I'm adjacent to the X-Men and feel weird about that sometimes, I also just think that, like, Warlock would be a very funny gopher or assistant for Ariel on like some kind of mission like I think that could be really funny they would be funny together I agree completely the comic potential for Warlock has been unexplored yeah like he's funny like let him be funnier I yeah think. and we haven't really had a book that was supposed to be primarily funny in the Krakoa era not a hundred percent but I would say Hellions is a funny book it also has moments of extreme pathos and sadness, but I would say the tone of it is mostly like dark comedy. It has like an always sunny in Philadelphia kind of vibe to it. Yeah, it's the kind of comedy I can't watch. Fair. I'm just, that's what it is, you know, like, or like Arrested Development. Like it's that kind yeah, of vibe. Cringe comedy. The one comic thing in Hellions that I do love is for a while, I, I haven't seen the, the, the new issue, maybe they've stopped. For a while, they killed Empath in every issue. 
because he's the one mutant who you actually do want to see. Just get it. When you catch up, we should talk because what Zeb Wells has done with Empath in the last couple issues is true genius, in my okay. opinion. I mean, but you know, I think Zeb Wells is a true genius. Oh, Zeb Wells is a true genius. I say that generally about most of what he writes, but the Empath stuff I've not been expecting, and it's been really yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, the the whole like taking 20 issues. This is not an Ileana episode. This is not an Ileana episode. This is not an Ileana episode. There's one more Warlock pairing that we need to see since you took us to Coconut Grove. Warlock and build a lobster. Would love to see it. Brian Houston writes, hello, Connor and Stephanie. First, Connor, thank you so much for spending so much time on listener questions. I love that newer fans feel welcome enough to write in. And even if some questions might seem a little basic, you treat them with respect and courtesy. Well, I try. Thank you. I don't think there are any bad questions, you know, like especially with X-Men continuity, for God's sake. Only bad answers. Yeah. And there are lots of those. As an older fan, I can say that's something that isn't done enough in fan spaces. Well, thank you. I, I mean, like, again, I'm just trying to provide like a positive zone, right? I've been a fan of Warlock since I first started digging through back issue bins and came across the Claremont Sienkiewicz New Mutants run. As Claremont continued his run, though, I think it becomes apparent that the transmode virus is seriously overpowered. Does it have any weaknesses? Are there any cures? How has it not taken over the Earth already? Seriously, it ruined Limbo in no time. But somehow Limbo got fixed? I know, I know, why? But between Magus, the Phalanx, and Necrotia, it's still not considered an imminent threat? Make that make sense, please. (laughs) There's a lot you could say about why dangerous viruses don't actually take over the earth and kill everyone in real life. Right. How they spread and when they spread. But this fantastical virus is very infectious. A full answer to that question would involve no prizing with fictional cybernetic virology. Exactly. Another answer that I would give to it is, huh, maybe everything on earth. One of the most ominous spooky things in all of the classic new mutants run is that page where it zooms in and in and in and in on doug's eye until you see a tiny fleck of the teo virus in his eye and it never goes anywhere because he dies when they examine him for traces of the techno-organic virus in the 90s when they're like exhuming the corpse basically they don't find any now that i think you could interpret as because the phalanx sucked it all up but the implication definitely was that more things are infected than you might think yes right it's a great panel it's a great sequence it's drop thread and i think it's gonna come back because that is again as i said something that's been hinted at with black tom in the recent issues of x-force we've seen warlock infecting plant life on krakoa i can't wait so yeah well stephanie is there anything else you really want to say about warlock before we start to wrap yes there is I want to talk about disability and assistive technology and the feeling, and I mentioned uh, the poet Jillian Weiss and Sai's cyborg pronouns, Sai, 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 and other people who feel not that they are post-human or beyond humanity in some way, which I don't want to get into, and which is phalanxy and kind of destructive, <laughs> but people who rely on technology rather than on organic bodies made of cells to do basic life functions, which is never fully separable from relying on other people to do things with you. One of the things that becoming as an adult, again, a serious X fan has done for me, and it's partly through this podcast, partly through Jane Miles and the comic success crowd and like other fandoms and partly just through who my friends are now, I think a lot more than I used to about disability and assistive technology. 
And Warlock's stories and Warlock's relationship to Doug, where he's sometimes a friend and sometimes a suit and sometimes an arm and sometimes a vehicle, is a good way to think in real life about overcoming the stigma of relying on technology to do something that non-disabled people can just do with their regular bodies. And the harder you look and the more you look at Warlock and at his relationship to Doug in particular, the more you see that there's no bright line between assistive technology like a wheelchair, assistive technology like the eyeglasses that I'm wearing now, which let me see you, technology that's not normally regarded as assistive like my microphone and my headphones and you know motorcycles and bicycles. We as modern humans have a variety of relationships with technology and with the people who build the technology and also with our friends who help us do things, whether it's typing for you when your hand hurts or reaching for something from a high shelf or giving you a ride someplace or you know making clothes for you. We have a series of relationships with tech and with other people to do things we can't do by ourselves. And that's what it means to be a modern human. And when we think about the social construction of disability and how different people can do some things and not others, and how we differ in our abilities, having a character who is in fact made entirely of tech and is sometimes somebody else's prosthetic arm and sometimes a spaceship is a very good way into thinking about the paradigm of social construction for disability and the way that so many of us disabled and non-disabled rely on tech and it is a good thing to have the tech you can rely on and it's okay to need it well that's lovely and i thank you for sharing that thought why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and plug anything that you want to plug? Okay, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for returning. So much fun, and now I want to do it again. <laughs> so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Accommodatingly, A-C-C-O-M-M-O-D-A-T-I-N-G-L-Y, or just look for Stephanie Burt. Yeah, I always spell it wrong at first, and then you pop up anyway. And I'm like, thank yeah, God. It doesn't matter. Yeah. There's two Stephanie Burke. The other one's a wonderful <laughs> food writer in South Carolina. I'm the one who does poetry and comic books. So I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, I am on Instagram at not quite Hyde Park, but I'm not very active there. Um, if you want to show me some pictures, go ahead. I have some new books and some forthcoming books. My newest book is a chapbook of poems, mostly about X-Men characters called For All Mutants from Rain Taxi Editions. The full length books that came before that are a book of poems and translations called After Callimachus, and a book about how to read poetry called Don't Read Poetry, a book about how to read poems, which Basic Books published in 2019. And there will be a book of poems called We Are Mermaids, published by Grey Wolf next fall, which will also, I mean, everything I read about the X-Men in some sense these days, but it will have a couple of explicit X poems along with a whole lot of X Easter eggs, like everything else I do. So those are my new things and that's me on social media and so many self friends and self soul friends have helped me become the person who could do this and go on the show with you and just like thank you to the community 
You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord, the merch store, and the Patreon at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash Cerebrocast, you can have an ad-free experience and access to any secret file bonus episodes that may pop up. There are a couple fun ones coming down the pipe. Thanks for your patience on those. I did a whole bunch of four-hour episodes without thinking I was going to be. They're four and a half fucking hours. I haven't had time to do bonus episodes. I'm working on it. Love you guys. Thank you. You can write to Cerebro at CerebroCast at gmail.com. Questions are still open for the episodes on Sauron with my dad and Dr. Valerie Cooper with Patrick Sullivan. I am looking forward to those. I will be announcing December slate soon. I'm just getting some guests confirmed. And now, before we go, I'm going to let Stephanie play us out with a list she and her friend Fiona Hopkins have made of everything they could remember that Warlock ever turned into in the 80s and 90s. Things Warlock becomes a not exhaustive list. A plug into a kitchen outlet a speaker stand at a Lila Cheney concert, a Star Wars-style ground transport machine, an entire spacecraft, a one-eyed octopus tentacle thing, a whole bunch of eye stalks, a helicopter, he loves being a helicopter, a flying carpet, the Blackbird, a space landing craft, a diving bell-headed creature, a robot gladiator with spiky hammer arms, a Transformers-style automobile, a puddle of goop, binoculars attached to a slinky, a triangle-headed toy robot, Ilyana Rasputin, a sunshade <laughs> with giant apologetic teeth, a regular teenager with inappropriate pants, a regular teenager in a one-piece, a regular teenager in a bikini, a tank that is also Thomas the Tank Engine, a fighter jet, a spinning motorcycle like the ones from the movie Tron, eight feet tall with a slinky torso, a mech suit for Doug to fight in. Gumby, literally Gumby. A robot pterodactyl, part of Doug. The USS Enterprise. A hairdryer with hairdryer hands. Wait, wait, wait. A hairdryer with hairdryer hands? Warlock is holding a hairdryer with one hand and being a hairdryer with the other hand. Great, thank you. Please continue. A tennis net, an anime suit on stilts for Doug. A vacuum cleaner. That's before Inferno, by the way. A cross between a blackbird and the blackbird with flappy wings. A skateboard, a mini rocket, a three-headed cartoon character, a floated cannon, a kind of Dr. Seuss-shaped pod holding tools, a mechanical boxing glove, the impossible man, space ghost, the cartoon character, a guy with a beanie, the thing, a muscle beach strongman guy in Rio, a tennis pro, Captain Britain, Sylvester Stallone as Rocky, Nick Fury, Spider-Woman, Spider-Man, the first Captain Marvel, Marvel, the Watcher, a Gundam anime creature, first in kind of black and white and then in color, a dandelion, a propeller plane, warlock but with a donkey face, a mini brontosaurus, a five inch tall head, an airplane that you can ride on like a playground toy, an airplane with arms, Rick Ocasek, and then there's a whole bunch of helicopters, 
In the Solo series alone, he becomes an owl, a snake, the alien from Aliens, a pterodactyl again, a New York City taxi, a raincoat with a hat, bazooka hands, Superman with a W instead of an S on his chest, Don Quixote, a canopy bed, an inflatable balloon guy, a spare part in a water purifier, King Kong, a Zeppelin, a T-Rex, a flying BW bug, an electric eel, a giant snake, a T-Rex again, then he's a brontosaurus, then he's a lamia like in the Keats poem, and then he's Bugs Bunny. And in the current New Mutants series, very recently, he has become armor and a sword, karma, and warpath. Well, there you go. And that's poetry. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and until next time, bye. Bye, self friends. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.